Hi, this is Toka US brand manager, Ian Harvey. I have a, a real treat for you again today. I'm here with Marty Hall. Marty was the first full-time paid US cross-country ski coach and a true pioneer and innovator. Marty coached for the US ski team from 1969 through 1978 and for cross-country Canada from 1981 through 1992. Most notably from my perspective are the many innovations and solutions that Marty found to common problems leading to breakthroughs in training and technology. This is a problem solver and man of action who changed the landscape of Nordic ski racing. If you wanna be inspired by an animated interview full of great stories and by a uniquely capable person not afraid to share his opinions and ideas, this is your great opportunity. I present to you the iconic Marty Hall. Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I hope you're well. I'm doing as best I can at this age. Cool. We're going to cover a whole lot of things and historical things, as well as we're going to comment on a lot of current day situations. I, I think people might be interested in contacting you for follow up for discussions. What is your contact information? A little lower, a little lower. So that's in the video. You can see it, but I'm going to read it in case there's someone just listening. Mr. XC at AOL.com is the email address and 603-832-9145 is the phone number. Thanks, Marty. Okay, so I wanna, I wanna do this interview a bit differently than the ones that I've done thus far. I wanna structure the discussion into segments and within that structure, give you the opportunity to run with it. So Marty, you are such an impressive, innovative and problem solving character that I wanna make every effort for our followers to see this and to be inspired by your example of finding creative yet pragmatic solutions to problems. I anticipate this being a long yet informative and entertaining interview. The first segment that I would like to start with is where you grew up and where you started skiing. Basically, I'd like to cover things to the point where you started coaching. Wow, that's a long, that's a long way from where I started. It is. So let me, let me, let me. Where we are today. You were born in Pennsylvania. You moved to Queens, New York, and then you moved to Guilford, New Hampshire when you were eight. Can you please tell us about this time and when and where you started skiing? Okay. The first thing I would say is that well, when I started to start talking about me in the beginning, the, the war was on. World War II was on. And, uh, when we lived in uh, the Queens, Queensboro, which is a, a part of the city of New York, I could look out my window, kitchen window, and see the Empire State Building. So I was not in a snow uh, climate uh, like all of the other people who I've talked to who walked out their door at four and five. I didn't, I really didn't even know what the heck snow was. And uh, my parents, my, we lived uh, in Pennsylvania for uh, three years, and then we moved to New York City, Queensboro, part of the big city. And like I said, can see Empire State Building. The uh, thing was, is my dad was a wartime worker, which is very interesting. I didn't know that for a long time. And uh, he worked for a company called Sperry, and they made bomb sites. Okay. So once the war was done, he was done pretty much with that. And we also had told him uh, I had two sisters one younger, one older. And uh, um, we both, all three of us went to my parents and said, we want to get out of the city. We want to get to, uh, I got to get Kathy to help me here. Okay, for a second, Ian. 
How do I get rid of that? Or do I? I'm afraid to touch anything. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> there we go. I got you. I had a thing saying this is being recorded on it, and I didn't dare click on it. Anyway, so um, we told my parents that we wanted to get out of the city. We didn't want to like living here anymore. So all of a sudden, my dad disappeared for a week, came back, and he had a, a new job, and it was in Laconia, New Hampshire, which is where I'm sitting right now. I'm in a community, and um, we ended up here by chance. We um, had a friend who was in this place for 20 years and we visited him a lot, a lot. And so we kind of got the feeling that we liked this place. And so then we looked at it and they called us up one day and said, you're gonna be offered the best house in this place. He said, you better take it or I'm gonna kick your, you know what. And so uh, we came and looked and uh, decided. And then after, after we decided and told them that we were, wanted to come here, not even really thinking about that Guilford was just over the hill. Uh, we uh, went home and had a, a, a celebration dinner and uh, also decided that uh, we better go back and take a look again. So when we got back to the, oh yeah, we're gonna refurbish your house. And they said, refurbish means from top to bottom. So the palace we're living in right now is pretty much the work of my wife. Kathy got up. She's a little bit of a fanatic. I mean, she had drawings of all the furniture and placed it in the living rooms and bedrooms. And so we ended up in a great place. Uh, we were familiar with the surroundings. Kathy knows how to get around. I take her out of the back road. She knows she's on White Hill Road and, uh, you know, she knows everything. So it's going good, really. Uh, so um, the uh, and, and the reason we moved here from where we were, which is about 60 miles, that's all. But the difference in temperature and snow in Durham, where we were, uh, every storm had uh, rain on the tail end of it. So we were pretty much a mud place and uh, we didn't have the temperatures that we do have. We've been below 30 for th one month right now. I mean, we've got so much frost in the ground. I'm not sure the snow will disappear in May until May. So, hey, Marty, tell me about how you started skiing. When and okay, how, how so, so that, okay, okay. So, my dad came home and told us, hey, we're moving to this place and you're going to be in snow. You will go skiing. I said, we said, what? What's skiing? That's how bad we were. So we moved to Guilford. We got there in November. Uh, lived in a hotel for a month until we um, got situation situated in our house. And I can tell you, from then on, I was out the door. And I we had a kitchen where the light shined out on this back patio, which gave me a hill every night. It didn't matter what was going on. Every night I was out there until my parents said, you get in here. It's time for bed. I had a little ski jump. I might've gone four or five feet on it, but that was enough. And that's how I got started. And then at the same time that we moved in, uh, about 10 other families moved in at the same time with the same age bracket. Everybody seemed to be, you know, leaving where they lived to get to a new Great place, and it turned out to be. I just heard a thing, you know. This is this is the best period of time to have lived in these locations growing up. 
And we've said that to ourselves. We, we still see each other a lot. Uh, Penny Patu, Dick Taylor came out of this club. So they, so all those guys put 10 bucks into a hat at $100, bought a Model T Ford, got a farmer to let him put it on his land. He had a hilly side pasture. And that's where we started skiing. And we had a guy who was a pilot for um, Pan Am. And so he would work 10 days, be off 10 days, work 10 days. So he was our coach. We had all kinds of organized programs. Gunstar. Marty, what you're describing, did this become the Guilford Outing Club? It's in the process. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so they set up and that's, uh, essentially, yes, that became the Guilford Alley Club. We didn't go to the Belknap area, Gunstock, which is over on the backside of the hill because it was too aggressive and cost money. Whereas the Alley Club, that costs 10 bucks forever. And so uh, we had a rope tow. Uh, Gary was our coach. And also uh, one of the, we had a number of teachers because this. it was amazing how hard how many people would be at this little rope toll every weekend, you know? And then one of the guys, his name was Seth Keller. He owned Keller House, which was an ice cream factory. Every Sunday, there would be ice cream at the rope toll, no matter, you know, it, 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 was, it was there. And, uh, and of course, ice cream and kids, uh, natural. So we all ended up, uh, he and... We ended up being very organized, very uh, competitive group. We had a, a five bars that you got a bar for doing this and this and another bar for that and another bar. And finally, you got the big bar for the top. And, of course, the race was on for between all of us to uh, decide who was going to be the best skier. And then he started getting us competitions with prep school to be teams. And we'd kick the – and so the girls were on the team too. The girls are really – and so um, Penny was a great, Penny Patu was a great ski jumper. We had our hands full beating her. Um, so uh, that was the outing club. And we did all kinds of things in the summer. I could show, hold up a picture here if I find it again of us being in the uh, Pemajawasset wilderness on one of our hikes. My dad with a rifle because in that time of the year, you, you got to be aware that there are bears up in that kind of territory so uh it was a great great place for the bonding to take place i mean it was just amazing everybody skied everybody skied and it was uh and and every afternoon after school we'd all meet in the back of the school with our skis on our own and we would just take off until it got dark and then we had down in back of my house uh we had this big Meadow, not meadow, what do you want to call it? Anyway, a section of the woods that was all birch trees, just tons of birch trees. We would shinny up those birch trees in it with our skis on, and the trees would bend over and let us down to the ground. Then up in the, and then we had three jumps on the hillside back there. Uh, to one jump, you had to go between two trees to get through, and they were really tight, you had to stay tight. And the one was a sand pit. We had an um, 80 foot uh, record on that hill, that hill. And then the, uh, that first hill, you'd land and then you could go straight down the hill or turn left. I mean, we did everything. And uh, whether it was summer or fall, this group was together. And uh, the girls did everything. The girls did everything. We played a football game 
um, in the fall one year against Laconia kids who were organized on their own. And they came out, we started the game. The girls came to the huddle after a few plays and they said, these guys are really hitting us. And I said, get back out there and hit them. <laughs> and that was part of my development. I wanted to always be the leader and I was, okay? My wife came home from a book club one time and walked in the door. She said, okay, you ready? I said, yeah. And she says, you've got 20 seconds in five words. What's your epitaph? I said, I did it my way. How could you do that so fast? I said this. And that's the way I've been ever since. I do it my way. And it's worked and, for you. Uh, whether I get in trouble or not, yeah. you know, um, I can stand up to it. Tell me about going to Vermont Academy. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's because I was a, so I didn't, my, I hated school. I did not like school. And it's a one of my mother had after five years of me being older and resisting school, I would not do homework. Uh, I flunked actually. So I didn't graduate <laughs> from high school, Laconia high school, like I was supposed to. So we went looking for a prep school. Uh, so I could get another year in, get some grades and get organized and have people who are watching over me all the time who didn't love me like my parents did. And so uh, we went around and uh, I got a, it, it was $2,000 for the year to go to it. And I got a thousand dollar scholarship. And uh, so uh, I was off to prep school and I thought, oh boy, here we go. I can play football because I wanted to play football in the worst way. And uh, uh, so I went to the first practice and the guy had, the coach had me in the, in the lineup to be a guard. And I said, nope, I'm a back. I can kick the hell out of a football. And he said, you're, you're in the line or you ain't. And I said, well, I ain't. I'm in the trail crew now. So that happened. Oh, Vermont Academy was an eye opener because uh, like one of the things was you have to wear a suit, uh, not a suit, but a dress coat and a tie to breakfast every morning and go to school like that every day. And they had study periods and you had to be in there and you had to stay awake during them and you had to do. So I finally got good grades and um, had no idea about going to college. And um, one day, um, one night, actually, the athletic director came down and said, fill this out for me, will you please? And I said, what, what is it? He says, application to go to UNH. And I said, okay. So I filled it out, gave back to him. About 10 days later, he came and said, you're going to UNH next fall. So that was put in the back of my brain and finished the school year. was home during the summer. And I, my parents knew that I was going to go to UNH. But I finally said, you know, I'm going to be going there. I better go down and take a look at the place. And uh, so I ended up going to UNH, same problem. Uh, I was an okay student, but not good enough to stay in after two years. I had flunked out. And so uh, the foot, oh, in, in that interim type two years, one day uh, my roommate who had been one of my classmates and ski mate, uh, Laconia, we're going out to uh, ski practice and uh, going across the football fields. And there was a, guy there kicking a football and I looked over and it was the, the uh, 
quarterback for the team. And I said, uh, can I uh, kick these back to you? And he said, sure. I'm sure he was laughing. You know, who the, who the hell are you? You think you know how to kick a football? So pretty soon there's a big building down at the end of the football fields called T Hall. Pretty soon I had him going, if I'd have kept going, I'd have had him at T Hall because I was a better kicker than he was. And as it was getting close to their practice, the coach came out and he said, who are you? I said, I'm uh, Marty Hall. He says, you'll get a letter from me in the springtime asking you to come out to the football team and that, that'll get you on the team. So I said, walk on, which is, okay. So I walked on, I was right away the punter. Um, I was also field goal kicker. And I've got a picture here somewhere of me kicking a 40 yard field goal that went through the uprights like it's supposed to. But that was the first win in 13 games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was no pressure when I said, and, and you know, and I was sort of like in a dream thing. It, it, there was no pressure. By the time I finished playing football, I was the lead scorer. I realized that I also was the fastest guy on the team. And um, so I've got, I don't know where those pictures have gone. We'll probably take a, do we take a break in this thing or do we just keep rolling? No breaks. No, you're, you're tough. <laughs> so, so when you were at UNH, you not only skied for UNH, which we'll talk about in a second, but you also played football, as you described, and you ran no, track. I ran track. I ran the sprints. I wasn't good, you know, I was fast, but I wasn't good enough to be first, second except for in a javelin. I threw the javelin also and ran the, I ran the hurdles and I ran the 100 and the 200. And so, and the big thing for me, he, he would have run me in more races if you, but he would have killed me if I'd have had to do more heats and then do the races and all that stuff. So um, I, I was a point scorer for the team score. So like I would, I would, so I don't know how many places they went with the, the points, but I was always in the points. I was, so I, I was the biggest helper of the team with points because I ran so many events. So I, I, if I'd have gotten involved in track earlier, I would have tried out for decathlon because hmm. I could, uh, I had a pole vault put in my backyard and I could get, I was up to 13 feet when I, Wow. Finally, stopped doing that kind of yeah. No, I was good. And is you that know, that's the one that's 13 feet with a plexiglass or aluminum pole? Uh, it would a bamboo bamboo pole. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. <laughs> so, um, it was, um, I, I'm a, so I know you know when you, I mean, you you know who you are, and I know who I am, and I look at myself as if I'm looking at another athlete and I know what I can do good. I can't play golf. My wife beats me at golf. Okay. Suck. Hey, I just Marty, suck. I let's, suck. Let's talk about skiing. Um, while you were at UNH, you were an outstanding athlete. Again, um, you finished second in the Ski Meister category in the NCAA Championships in 1961. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. Yes, it, it, well, when you when you go to the NCAA's, all the best guys are there. Yeah. You it want was, to describe what that what the ski meister category was at the time? Ski jumping. Okay. Oh, ski jumping, uh, slalom, downhill, uh, cross country. Right. And so I was. It was 
So we would start Saturday, uh, Thursday morning in the regular meet. Okay, and I do the uh, this, uh, downhill and then get in the car, change my boots on the way to the cross country site and then do the cross country race. And then next morning do the ski jump and then, oh, and then actually the ski jump was always last because it was the crowning event. And then do the uh, downhill. I did, so it was two days of intense, change your boots, change your clothes, change your boots, change your clothes, and uh, try and do a race. Yeah. Um, so, so as you mentioned briefly, during college, you took a break? Oh, I, I had an academic break. Okay. Okay. And I, I was like on the edge, and the football coach says, I can have you here next year. No problem. We, you know, I've got the pull. I said, nope. I said, I'm too stupid to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm taking a year off. So I went back to work for this uh, ready-mix outfit. Uh, they also did pre-stressed. I don't need to explain all that, but it's all concrete buildings and all that stuff. So I found myself in February working for this company. We did erection of buildings, 10-story buildings. I was on the top of a 10-story building in February in the middle of a rain, snow, storm, and about 1,000 miles an hour wind. <laughs> I said, this is stupid you're going back to school and you're going to get an education. And it was really interesting in that I, by then I changed majors three times or two or three times. But by then I knew I want, I said, you're just fooling yourself. You want to be in athletics. You want to be a coach. I really wanted to be a coach always. I wanted to be the leader and be the coach uh, because then I could coach. And I didn't know that I was doing it, but until afterwards I realized what I had done. So um, I got down off that building and I went back to school and lo and behold, my, my mother did really almost flip. I made Dean's list a couple of times and she said, where the hell was that? So anyway, they had changed the academics at the school. They brought in a professor of uh, physical education and he reorganized the whole physical education program so I could take physiology, not football, not basketball activities. I was taking actual courses, physiology, biomechanics, sports science, all that kind of stuff. And it really helped lay the groundwork for when I walked out of that place. And right away, the first thing I did with both teams that I, I worked with closely, um, started a sports science committee. And the first one I had was that that happened in uh, uh, out in Colorado. Uh, Jim Belfonts was my program director. Hey, hey Marty, let's let's hit that a bit later. First, I wanted to okay. talk about when you were at UNH, you took a break and you went up to Alaska. You joined the Army. You trained with the Modern Winter Biathlon Unit in Alaska. What was your motivation in joining the Army, and what was this unit in Alaska like? So here we go. In 1962, uh, can I read? Yeah, if you want. I yeah. typed this up. It makes it easier. I received a letter from Dick Taylor. You know him? Yeah. He was my best man at my wedding. He was one of my grow-up pals. Mm -hmm. a, uh, received a letter from Dick Taylor explaining that he was in the U.S. biathlon unit, and I didn't know that. And stationed in Anchorage, Alaska. If there was any reason why I would think I would be in the Army in the next four to five years, 
I should think about getting into the bi biathlon unit as they were looking to get in looking to enlarge the unit. All how to do this was in the brochure that he had enclosed. After excited, excitingly reading the brochure about the process three or four times, I informed my parents as to the fact I would be going into the army as a drafted soldier, two years. In the spring when I was done with school for the year, I let them read the brochure so that they didn't think I was going off on a in a crazy direction, which I could do at times. Uh, uh, in a crazy direction, college was still in the long-term plan. My dad was so dedicated. You know, I, I can't tell you how often I, you better finish college, boy. You better, it's the only time he got inserted himself. So, so, uh, I got to get back here. I informed my parents I would be going into the Army as a draft so in the spring. When I was done with school for that year, I let them read the brochure so that they didn't think I was going off into a crazy direction. College was still in the long-term plan. This was the opportunity of my life, and I would gain on all fronts. Army out of the way, no threats, making money, going skiing, seeing Alaska, growing in my sport of skiing. I'm a winner. Skiing, skiing, skiing. That was the biathlon unit was a dream. So tell me about what it was like and what you learned up there. Uh, well, the, the thing that was really so the next day I was at the board at the draft board pushing my number to the top of the draft board in Hamilton in June, just as I was finished my high school year at school as planned. Two weeks later, I was off to the army in basic training on a bus trip to Fort Dix for basic training. The thing that I walked into was a highly organized unit that was all about biathlon, all about biathlon. We had a section of a, of a uh, building that was dedicated to us for our housing. We roomed up as pairs. Some of the, and I'm not sure how important or if you know these names, but Peter Ladden Para, Joe Pete Wilson, Dick Taylor, Charlie Akers. I mean, what a what a group of athletes was there, and all competitive in every train. Not that the best of things that could happen, but who we raced and raced and raced. Every workout was who was there first, who was there first, who was there first, and Latin Pair was a nut. So that so, but the army was behind us. We had a um, commanding officer, a first sergeant. We had a sergeant of, for shooting. We had a sergeant for training. That was Senor Hansen. And um, uh, I barely wore my fatigues. We just, we were, it was interesting to see how they fit us into the base because we were living in the middle of the base. Everybody saw us, but then all of a sudden, when they realized Olympics was attached to our name so somewhere down the line, we became really important. And the other thing that was great about it was I learned to shoot. So they brought five guys from the Army over who could cross-country ski, kind of, but could really shoot. Then they brought five of us guys in, and we couldn't shoot, but we could cross-country ski. So the test was on. We didn't realize it, but they told us when we got done. You win, you win, you all the cross country guys won. He could learn to shoot. 
but the, learning to shoot was a lot of, because it was totally organized. I mean, they have a system and it works. And so. So a comment about, I think that this biathlon program in Alaska and Anchorage was um, important for the history and development of US skiing. Oh. If you look at some of the people that were involved there, they went on to influence thousands and thousands of others in future, like Joe Pete Wilson, you mentioned, Dick, he, he was very um, influential in skiing Lake Placid area for a long time. Dick Taylor was a longtime U.S. ski team coach and also involved in Gould and Gould Academy for a long time. Yep. John Morton was in that program for a long time and has affected a lot of people. Uh, you've been a national team coach for many years and have changed the landscape of U.S. skiing. The Sven Johansson will mention in a, in a bit here, but he played a, a significant role. So that's something that's really, I think I wanted to highlight this oh this couple of years because it was really quite important and no one knows about it. Yeah. And, and the thing was, everything was done professionally. That was the thing. And, and so, that, you know, all the coaches I had up until that point, like my, my UNH coach was an alcoholic. I used to drive people, drive the, one van or car home every meet after racing four times on the weekend, maybe a fifth time, and then drive home. I was in the driver's seat. He was over there drunk. And the school had to have known it. There was one football game I was I kicked off, and I went and got the key from kicking off. It was running towards the sideline, and I'm looking at him head on, like I'm looking at you right now. And I said, Ed, you're drunk. And he was there. Uh, we're playing an official football game. Uh, my high school coach was nothing. I mean, I, I like at UNH, I never had one organized workout with the coach. We'd go up to the field house, he'd give us our skis, go out and ski in college woods. That was it. That was it. So you got you came back to UNH for a bit, um, finished your career there, and not too long afterwards you started coaching. And something you said about this to, to, to transfer transition from athlete to coach is you said that this experience in Alaska gave you the tools to be successful as a modern day coach. Which is a that's what I got from that's what I got from the school. I can thank them for the education they gave yeah. me. Finally, I had to figure it out. It took me 14 years to get through college, but that was also with the ins and outs. Like, I, And then I went back to Alaska another time. I, I loved Alaska. Yeah. And I went back up there with the idea that, um, you know, if it was going to be that agreeable again, I would, that's where I would be. So I got laid off in the fall from that job. I had a job. I got a job with the railroad and that happened. That was great the way it happened. So when I, I drove up, decided I was going up there on my own, uh, had a bunch of money so I could support myself and um, drove the Alaska highway by myself. And you can, that was back when it was all stones I mean, and dust. And you'd get behind a tractor trailer and you'd say, Oh my God, I got to get by this guy. And then finally you just pull out and go. It could have been a car or another truck coming the other way. And you'd be mincemeat for sure, because you'd be going fast and they'd be going fast. So I met these two guys on the highway 
They came, pulled into this gas station. I had broken a shock absorber on my car and I was waiting for a piece to come for, by bus to fix that. And these guys come in and they've got a flat tire and they, their jack doesn't work. It's a Toyota Land Cruiser type thing. And um, so the, those two guys were pretty good sized guys. And so the one guy put the jack under the car and the other two of us lifted that and they fixed it. And we got talking and everything, what they're going to do. And, so I waited for them to get ready to get, get going back on the highway. And we started out and they were going too slow. That thing wouldn't go very fast. So I took off, got the white horse. I had a flat tire just before I got the white horse. And I got out to fix it and I stumbling around. I was woozy and everything. I didn't realize how, you know, I hadn't had any sleep. Wasn't, I wasn't eating right and all that kind of stuff. So I pulled into white horse, got into a hotel and um, I was, asleep and all of a sudden bang 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 on the door these two guys had come into whitehorse driving around saw my car had to wake me up and talk to them so they said we're going on so we'll be at the railroad yard when you get there so make sure you come and find us so they went on i went on i went to an employment office in a town called palmer which is just above just before you get to anchorage and in the uh where I went to look for jobs in the employment office and it says big sign as you walk in if you're from the U.S. and you have only so much money head back <laughs> don't stay here there are no jobs so I said well you know I had to find out for myself so I went to Anchorage found these guys and they had gone we're traveling along at night and they were going to run out of gas, but they went by an airport. They took, jumped over the fence for the bucket, got some gas, airplane gas. Okay. Put it in their Toyota, got to this, the um, train yard, went up and saw the guy. The one guy had a job. The other one didn't. But when he went up with the one guy that did, uh, they gave him a job too. So I, started, you know, found them down there. They had, the whole engine apart on the ground on a rug and they had blown a timing gear and they're fixing it. They knew how to do that. I would have just blown my car up if that ever happened. So anyway, they said, go in that door over there, but not this door because you go and that's the employment. Nobody's getting jobs there, but you might get one here. I said, well, what's the guy's name? They said, Mr. Smith or whatever it was. And I saw it went in. I, he said, what do you want? I said, I'd like to see Mr. Smith about getting a job. So I'm in, he brought, brought me into his office. We were talking and stuff. And I just happened to say, you know, well, I was up here uh, with the biathlon unit. And Sven Johansson, he's my next door neighbor. Here, read this book. Come back, take the test. And if you get, you'll, you'll get a job with the railroad as a brakeman. Huh. And I, that happened. And I, so I couldn't believe that. So the railroad is owned by the government, national government, okay, U.S. The money they were throwing around up, this was, so if the Japanese were ever going to invade, they'd be coming through Anchorage. 50,000 guys in the army there, 50,000 in Isleson, which is up uh, in Fairbanks. So there's 100,000 troops, okay, plus all the, all the train stuff and all the airplanes. There's a, each base, army base, and an air force base. So I got a job with, with the, uh, I took the test, passed the test. And then, so with the railroad, if you went over eight hours by a minute, 
you got time, double time for the next eight hours. And so I didn't know, and I had found a place, some friends of mine down in the States had a brother that lived up in Fairbanks. And that's where I got pushed by the seniority type thing with the, with the government, with the railroad seniority. Anybody who had better seniority than you could push you out of your job and they'd get your job and then you'd get pushed to another job. So I ended up in Fairbanks a lot of times because nobody wanted to be up there. But I found, had a friend who had a house and they said, I talked to him on the phone. They said, yeah, just go up, walk in the door, go down the back end of the house. There's a room down there. You can have it. And so I wasn't paying for a room. So I, I didn't know what to do. So then I went to work for a gas station besides. I'd work for the railroad in the morning and then gas station in the afternoon. So lots of money. Hey, let's talk about your coaching career. There was none up there. I, I was, I I was still, an athlete, still an athlete. I want to jump a, a forward a year or two. In, in 1967, you were working for what is now called NENSA, New England Ski Association is what it's now called. But back then it was called United States Eastern... US, USEASA, United oh. States Eastern Amateur Ski Association. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I was in it. So I, I, I bumped into a, a teammate of mine on just about the same day or week that I got married. So there was Kathy and I married. Not either of us had uh, uh, a job, okay? But we owned two cars. <laughs> so, so I bumped into my, this ski teammate of mine, and he was working for uh, USASA um, as competition director. And he's for Nordic and Alpine. It was ski jumping. Uh, cross country, downhill, slalom, all that stuff. So it was a lot of people, a lot of people he was organizing and things that he was doing as a competition director. He says, "You, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm doing nothing right now." He says, "How would you like to be my Nordic program director?" And that's how I got my job. Okay, cool. <clears throat> so, but I wasn't a coach. I was really I know jackass of all trades. What What I want to start introducing is the idea of how you've been a real innovator and pioneer. And this is, this is how I want to get there. So you know how sometimes things are fine and everyone is happy, and then someone introduces some new kind of idea representing a breakthrough of some kind, and then everyone quickly embraces it, the new idea, and then would never be satisfied with how things used to be. Your career was full of introducing such paradigm-changing breakthroughs. One great example of this was your new cross-country ski track sled. You saw a plan that Sven Johansson, that's the same as Sven Johansson that we mentioned yeah. in the Army Biathlon Program in Alaska, he had made one of a cross-country ski track sled in Alaska, and you saw that plan. And you and your father then constructed one in your cellar. There was a New England race series at the time, and you worked for that organization. And from this point on, you would travel around New England, and on Fridays and Saturdays, you would drag this new track sled behind your snowmobile and prepare the race courses so that people wouldn't be racing on purely skied in trails, which is what the, which is what the situation was previously. These were the first machine groomed cross country ski trails in the Eastern United States. How did this change things? Previously, all ski trails were skied in and had no machine grooming. This is how I grew up too. Clearly once the trails started to be machine groomed, the activity became faster, more modern and more enjoyable. And of course, this improved the race experience even more. 
So please, Marty, talk about this revolution that you were able to bring about. Well, there's the, yeah, <laughs> I just, I was, I was alone. I had the machine. I organized the clubs to be ready for me when I came to have a ski do for me. And I would go out and set tracks and mostly at night, because if I did it during the day, there were always people out skiing. I wanted the tracks, the tracks had to set up. Uh, so it was an education for me as to how malleable snow was and how it would set up. I didn't have a clue about heat of hydration, okay? Which is the process that takes place when you tumble snow. It actually, there's friction amongst the molecules and they heat up and melt and they and freeze and get hard. And that's what, what happened to the track. So I do it at night, but I was out there alone. I always had either two cinder blocks or one big rock on the sled. And I can't tell you how many times I would take it off. Oh, and the trails were so narrow, rickety, you know, back and forth and up and down. So it was a, it, it was a job, real, yeah. real physical job, you know, Stone falls off, you're not setting tracks, it's not heavy enough, so have to stop the machine, get off the machine, walk back, put the rock back on, put the blocks back on, get back on the machine, start it up. Or if it, you know, back in those days, they weren't so reliable in that regard. And so just, I, I worked my ass off. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the outcome was very visible and it was very, it was very suitable. And I did that for the next two years, um, did that. And it was starting to be done. I'm reading all these papers and books and uh, stuff and kids talking about tracks and no tracks. The big interesting thing for me out of that whole thing was that when I went to Home and Cole, that was in the late 60s. When I went to Home and Cole in like in 74, they were still stamping tracks in. That was eight years later than us, you know, so the Norwegians weren't such innovators as they thought they were. Um, and then the other thing it did for me, uh, once I got doing that, uh, the clubs, our relationships melted together. And so and this is kind of out of all, you know, I'm the new guy, so I'm going to hold these up. You want to know how I got to where I did? Can you read that? National training program, Russian training program. Move it down a little bit, please. Uh, Norwegian training program. I don't know what the middle one is, but so you're looking finish, at finish, finish, finish training. So you're looking at I training programs from other it countries. It was like, well, I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, these were in my office. Spine on they the were... <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing. And so you can't believe how much I've, I've read these things and what I pulled from them. So you say, you know, a lot of what I was made up of was made up out of those. I mean, the Russians, I have a saying that the Russians use. If you don't go out without your poles in the winter, why should you go out without them in the summer? Mm -hmm. So in other words, specificity, take those poles, extra muscles being used, all that stuff. So... That really, those things really helped me. Okay, then the other thing, one of the things that came out of is this thing. I, I have shown this to so many, uh, I'll tell you. Can you read it? Can you see it? Training hours progression by age and year for women and for men. Yeah, and by the time you are 20, 
six years old and a man skier, you should be doing a thousand hours. We were so far behind. You know, yeah. Jim Blanis has always said, oh, well, big deal. It's a matter of what you're doing. No, 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 no. If you're in a program, you're going to be doing the right stuff. We've had the biggest time problem getting people to train those numbers of hours. And that's a, you know, Allison, take Allison Owen Bradley. I mean, that was the whole thing. Just close the gap. I'm doing what they're doing now. And, you know, so many times in our, our programs here, we were taking like Barbara Bridge was good, really a good skier, real good. She went to some races when she was a junior over there and did really well because she was doing the amount of training. She would go home, say, almost like I, I think about what I said about us going out after school every afternoon. And my other, Barbara, I just read her thing the other day. She says, I would go home from school, have a snack, take a nap and go skiing. And she said, I had the lights from the city to keep me, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So, Barty, in 1969 to 70, starting in that, you became the women's cross-country ski coach for the United States. Yeah. And then you and your wife, Kathy, introduced a national point system. There you go. That was, that, that, that was, was, that was, that was one of the things people didn't know or didn't like or didn't understand, but it didn't take them long. So that because national point system was used to rank and compare American skiers and was utilized in selecting skiers for the national team and for international trips. Can you talk about the need for this, for this national point system, especially in such a large country as the United States? No politics, no personalities, just the points. <laughs> that was it. And I can tell you, it took a while to do it because our, and this has been a big hold back for the whole country forever. That size of our country. It takes us three times as much money to go across the United States yeah. as it does to go across Finland, Norway, and Sweden. You know, so they had that closeness, it, communications, information got to them. It wasn't, it wouldn't take a whole year for something that we were doing to get to those people. But the points, people hate them in the beginning, but um, by the time they were done, so when I went to Canada, took the job up there, the first meeting I had with the team, I had a questionnaire that I handed out. And the last question was, what's the thing you hate about the team so much, the best, most? Every piece of paper can bear from a kid, athlete that was on the team. Selection, selection, always tainted, always, you know, politics, personalities. We're not ever sure that the right people make the team. And so it really gave us a basis, and it's a measure. It's a big problem for me, Kathy and I, and was the cross-pollination. How the hell do you, so we made, I made sure some national teams were going west all the time so that we were seeding the people out there and getting a, an honest or, or a system that had integrity. So it was, uh, it's, everybody still talks about points. So, so there's something else, Marty. In the early 70s, you, you formed a sports science team. And you and your sports science team developed a roller skiing treadmill for physiological, uh, physiological testing. 
Can you talk about the importance of being able to identify and improve on weaknesses and how you were able to, um, to take advantage of this treadmill? I need a physiologist <laughs> here. Um, you know, like I said, I said a little while ago, the program that I took in school at UNH uh, provided me with all the tools and the thinking, okay, and then the contacts, okay, the actual people. Jim Belfont, who was program director, was very connected with the university system throughout uh, the West. And so all of our physiologists, biomechanicians, I mean, Marvin Klein, uh, Art Dickinson, Dillman. I mean, so here's one. So we had a, and I, um, the guy who took care of the medical part of the, the group was Jack. I can't ever remember his last name. But so one of the things they did for us, like here's a, here's a simple instant. Whenever we go to Europe, this guy, Jack, had given me a bottle of 500 penicillin pills, 500 erythromycin, and uh, 500 um, tetracycline. The three, the three by, um, what do I want Antibiotics. Antibiotics, yeah. The three antibiotics that you would use for those kinds of sicknesses. We get on the phone, call Jack. It didn't matter. He said, you call me any time of the day. You got somebody sick, call me. And he would give us some things to do. And then he would tell, okay, you're going to use penicillin on this one. Very seldom did we do that. It was tetracycline or erythromycin. So we had faith in our system taking care of our athletes over there. That was the big deal. The other stuff that we, oh, we did, uh, uh, we had a treadmill that we could roller ski on. It's what we build Sparkola, you know Sparkola? We're gonna talk about each of these things separately. So okay. here's another question for you. I know you ran lots of camps. Um, I know you personally helped a lot of women, not just those who were on the US national team. Your efforts truly meant a lot to them. Even today, many years later, looking back, when I talk with people, they always mention you and how thankful they, they are for you. Um, after introducing US women to international competition, which you did in 1970 at the World Championships, and at the 1972 Olympic Games, Martha Rockwell, the amazing Martha Rockwell, finished yes. in the 10th place at the 1974 World Championships, which is a landmark achievement. In addition to Martha's outstanding result, was, what else stood out to you about the race that day? Anything remarkable about that race where... Okay, so here... Martha yeah, yeah, the place? fact that Mar Martha got knocked down in the race. She was in sixth place when she got knocked down, not 10th. So... We knew she was having a good race. And so I hate to get the cart before the horse, but anyway, she, I've, I've got a lady that I work with up in, the, in Canada and uh, she's the best in her class in the whole country for her age, okay? And the way she's gotten there is in, in our relationship, she listens. And she does what I tell her to do. And I'm not saying I'm all, all, I make mistakes and I don't worry, but more times than not, I'm, I do the right thing. And that was Martha. She and I had, you know, she's, so there was one time she says, you got to come over to my place. Cause I had you introduced heavy weightlifting and no, nobody in cross country 
you know, at that point would be doing, you got to do 20 or 30 reps, light weights. You don't want to get muscle bound. Well, I'll tell you. So that day that Martha finished 10th place of the, normally in that era, the Amer uh, the Scandinavian countries dominated skiing going into that time frame, but then suddenly East Bloc countries started dominating. And in that in that race in World Championships in 1974, and Martha was, got seventh out of the top 12 racers that day, only three came from non-East Bloc countries. What okay, so there was, yeah, okay, good. There was one year, so one of the things, my, one of my mantra things was, we have to ski more. We have to extend our ski. So we used to start, when I went to the program, we would start skiing in um, Thanksgiving, Winter Park. And so, but we, the Europeans were skiing a whole month before us. November 1st would be their first day. So we were 30 days behind on skiing. So that was a big goal of mine to be able to do that. Um, uh, get people on snow much earlier. Um, the, point, the point I was trying to lead you into, Marty, was the fact that those East Bloc countries are obviously using steroids. And that's that's what brought this flood of um, East Bloc countries into the top 12 in the World Championships in 1974, where suddenly it was dominated by East Bloc countries, Russia, East Germany, Czech Republic, etc. Well, that was the day. The day she was 10th. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. She, uh, she and the two other two other non-Soviets or Russians were in the top 14 or something like that. Yeah, which is at yeah. the time it, it signified the beginning of steroid rampant steroid use because previously it was more Scandinavians and and that's that's noteworthy, and it's also underlines what an incredible achievement it was for Martha to get that tenth place because it yeah. was by no means a clean field. In 1973, so, Marty, in 1973, you became the head U.S. cross country skiing coach. One, I want to talk about the spark hole that you mentioned. So, when skiing a long race such as a 50k, energy and fluid replacement is very important, and you identified that. You, Ken Sparks, and Doug Peterson created a new sports drink for in race feeds. The drink was called Sparkola after Ken Sparks. Yes. How did this it was, development? It was a scientific base. <laughs> yeah. How did this development take place? And you, did you also use it for recovery or in long training sessions, or was it only for races? Sparkola. That's interesting. That, that last question, I, I'm not sure I know the answer. Well, how did this? So anyway, so here's how this happened. In one of the in the previous year, we knew that you had to have drinks to be in a race, but we didn't know anything scientifically that would aid you. So I, at home in Colon that year, instead of being a timing station or a food station, I went and skied the whole course and stopped at every, at every feed station, okay, and tested or tasted, more likely tasted, what was going on there? Well, half the table would be water and whatever else. And then the rest of the table was coffee. Enough to knock the socks off you with caffeine. So I went back, talked to the, uh, the um, sports science guys. And they said, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get going on this. So 
we tried it. What we figured out was there's no way the Americans are going to want like a coffee type drink, not to not to their liking. So we chose Coke. Coke makes this country go. So we started, but then the big deal there was we had to defizz the Coke, and it, Christ, it it took a ton of time to do that. You had to do a couple of days before, take the cap off, let the fizz out, then you could use it fizzed a non-fizz drink to make a drink. But then we got to the point where we started finding district managers that we could get the syrup, so we could make it that much faster. So Doug Peterson and Sparksy. Ken got together and said, okay, let's, let's see if we can't figure this thing out. So Doug went to Boulder, got on the treadmill. There's some, some wild number of 30 Ks that he did in a 10 day period of time, like five times 30 Ks. And they would give him so much drink. Then they would pump his stomach and, you know, time. Well, that one was down there for this long. And that, so we finally came up with a formula. So that when they they would start taking the drink before the race, before they got on the start line, okay, it was they had had ten cups. Of, what was the equivalent to ten cups of coffee? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the big deal, the big deal is how to get them down off that horse after the race because they were taking it during the race too. So they just kept adding on. So anyway, we get that all, but that was where Sparkola came from. <laughs> Well, and it could, and it would would have worked if somebody would buy the formula. It was really, it, it did work. So you also introduced a number of innovations regarding strength and strength training. You identified the importance of being strong as a Nordic ski racer early on, yep. and you and your sports science team created a dynamic muscle testing machine okay. in the yep. mid seventies, which helped you evaluate body total body strength. Additionally, in nineteen seventy two. You and the Sports Science Committee identified the importance of lifting heavy weights at three sets to max. So that's another int introduction that was yep. an innovation. And lastly, you also saw and stole an East German design for a rollerboard in Kiruna, Sweden in 1974. Yep. Previously, rollerboards were not known about North America. Can you please talk about these developments? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... Your total body. I, I, I don't know if I would. I'm a sly guy. Okay. There are a lot of wax rooms that I've snuck into, a lot of <laughs> ski rooms that I've snuck into. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so um, get me on track. So you had the total body machine, you have heavy weight, okay. and yeah. you get the rollerboard. Okay. So. I took Martha, Koki, and um, Larry Martin, and myself to Sweden, Kiruna, in in the '74, um, and we, so we could get early skiing. When we got there, if there was that much snow on the ground, you would have. And so, as we're driving into where we're going to stay, the school we stay, which is where their race center, their trails are, and all that stuff. We go zipping by this Kniesel car and hit that car stops. We stop, come back. This is my guy, Kurt Matz. He's the racer chaser for Kniesel. He says, all the other teams are going north. That's where the snow is if there's any snow there. I said, well, too bad. We don't have any money for it. But the other thing he was, 
in the long run. He was my, uh, he, he gave me, he and I talked all the time about drugs, but he had access to Russian camps, okay? Because he was a Kanaisal guy. And he'd go in there and give skis out. And he said, Marty, you wouldn't believe what the hell. And he was a Czechoslovakian on top of that. So he was an Iron Curtain guy, but he was now living in Austria, peddling Kanaisal skis for Kanaisal. And we would talk all the time about all that stuff. So we, we settled in. We went down. There were some lakes, not lakes, ponds down at the bottom. And I would take the broom and broom from the center out to get enough snow to be able to put a track in. Okay. And so um, we decided after about a week of that, that we needed to do something for strength because we had, I mean, zero zero hills zero there might have been a little one between one lake and the next when i extended the two one lake to two lakes for them to ski around on i we as a group we decided we better get in in the gym so we go over to the gym and it's the swedes the one first thing you realize when you walked in the place you could barely see but they had the lights down dim save electricity that was the pitch so there was some guy in there in a wheelchair doing weightlifting, bum, 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 bum. So I started talking to him. I can talk to anybody. I can, uh, I'll find something that I can talk to you about. You can ask Kathy about that. She, 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 she marvels. She said, how do you do that? Anyway, so we got talking with the guy. I said, what's that thing over on the wall there? And he says, that's a rollerboard. These Germans left it. He says, they use it for workouts. And he says, the other thing about these Germans, he says, in my talking to them, every one of their men can bench press 100 kilos, 220 pounds. I bet you haven't got to, I'd be surprised. It'd be interesting to know. I mean, Keegan, she, I've got a picture here somewhere of Keegan doing dips with a big plate around her waist. So they're on to it. They know what the hell they're supposed to be doing. So Martha, when I went over to see her this one day, she said, you got to come and spot for me. I'm going for my record. So she lived about 10 miles from where I live. So when I was walking walk around the end and she's in there. She's got this rattly old bar. bar. <laughs> That's Martha. She probably went to some junkyard and figured it out or whatever. And so there she is getting ready to, bench press 125 pounds, which is 10 pounds more than what she weighs. And she did it four times. And that's how she went from being, uh, so when she started out, when they brought the Swedes over back in the 70s, the 60s, the 70s, she was a pack and a half a smoker a day. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. And she ran a publishing company and she wasn't doing she wasn't doing anything physical. She went to those races, did it on whatever she did as a natural thing in her life. So when she, in three years, two and a half years, she went from being zero, okay? In that race, she was sixth. Uh, Steve Williams and I, he was my assistant. We were at a, the next to last place you could give her a split. And we ran there, told her, and as we ran away, Steve said, I think I saw Martha fall down. Mm. 
when she came so we went over to this next uphill because it was, there was an uphill to the finish a good uphill she might have been able to improve her place another one or two spots easily okay and so she was yelling i was not down that kind of stuff we get to the finish line and she's in the in the finish area region holy hell the organizer the the chief of the races there and i had become good buds and he comes over to me and he says, one of my course people didn't realize there were still skiers out on the course and he knocked her down. There's nothing we can do about it. But So that night at dinner, we're sitting there having dinner, probably cry. They came in and uh, you'd have thought you were going to a funeral rather than a celebration. Well, it was like... They brought flowers like you couldn't believe. They filled a room up with flowers. They brought chocolates. They brought everything. And they apologized to her very profusely about, we're sorry, but there's nothing we can do. And you've embarrassed us because we can't. It shows that we don't know how to run a race. So anyway, but so that was Martha's the big test. Allison also. I'll tell you a story about Allison. So they were in East Klingenthal, and they were all these guys, kids. So the one of the things that comes out of all of this that pisses me off is that, well, you know, in Calgary, I made a sly statement that said, you know, they asked me, what did you think about the races today? And I said, this is not the Russian National Championships. And because the Russians had in both two days of racing, had seven of the eight medals. And I'm saying, holy shit. So I said, this ain't the Russian national championships, you know. And they say, what do you mean by that? And I said, you figure it out. So then I walked off, went down to the uh, the uh, supplier uh, village. And we were sitting in the, uh, I can remember, I'm sitting right like this and I can hear my radio right down there. And Marty, Marty. Are you there? Yes, I'm here, Sheila. Well, you better get your butt over here. It's all hell is breaking loose. They say you accuse the Russians of cheating. And so I go over in that. So anyway, that, that you know, I, I'm lucky I'm alive. <laughs> all the Canadian guys, they just wanted to, uh, I think I have a copy of the letter that the sport minister wrote to me. And uh, I couldn't, the only thing I was worried about, I wanted to keep my job because I had a good time doing it. And I did. Kathy, who's the, uh, who's the Norwegian girl? Annette Bo. So you know Annette Bo? Of course. Okay. So day after the race, the, that race and that scene, okay, we're coming back down from the, the venue, the from the uh, race center. And we're in a van. I'm sitting over in the corner, second row. And there's Annette in the street looking for a ride. And the driver says, can we take her? And I said, yeah, pick her up. So we we'll slide the door open. She looks, gets in and she looks, Marty, you son of a bitch, you did it. I can't believe it. You're the only one who's got the balls. That was Annette. <laughs> and it, it, <laughs> I, I got I to gotta tell a very quick Annette first story because she brought her up. I was in Lab City, Newfoundland, where the 
races were in the the early season races were there in 86 or 87. I can't remember which year yeah. it was in both years. World Cup opener as well as the Continental Cup races. And I was up there training before the races. And I was in the warming hut, um, just going skiing. And she and some other Norwegian women were there just finishing skiing. And they were changing. And they had a little gag going. And they, they, I could hear them kind of giggling. And one of them said to me, my back was to them. She said, don't turn around but knowing that I was going to turn around. And so I, learned, I turned to look to see what was going on. And she had taken her top off because she was changing completely and was facing me like on, she was, she was, she got a big thrill out of showing a, a teenager, her, her top, you know, her bare top. And I never, uh, I never forgotten that because it was, it was, you know, she was the ski hero, one of the big ski heroes in the world at the time. And, and she was goofing around with me, the teenager up in Lab City, Newfoundland. So that was a funny experience. Yeah, so I'll tell you a better one, okay? Okay. So we were on Dockstein, and it was a fall camp, early camp, so it was like in September, September on Dockstein. Yeah. And the American team was there too. I was with the Canadians when this happened. So the Americans are on the end. So after two or three days of the Americans and the Canadians, everybody ends up meeting at the top, and you're skiing with each other and all that stuff, and you leave your clothes in a certain place. And they brought boards, people, somebody's brought boards down so you put your bags on the board so they don't get wet and all that stuff. And so my, there's no Mike Gallagher coming up with the team. I said, hey, you guys, where the hell's Michael? Why isn't he up here? I mean, what the hell? The whole team's up there. And he says, they say, too afraid. He's too, just can't get on that tram. I said, I'll get him up here. You wait. So that, that, that afternoon, I go and see Michael. I said, what the hell are you doing? Do you realize what's going on up there? And he, I'm sure he thought I, I was kind of giving him a, a... I said, the Norwegian junior team's up there skiing topless. Exactly. <laughs> no joke, though. Oh, and then and also then at the end of the workout, all these boards... They've got their bag as a pillow and they're lying out there in the sun, no top and all that stuff. So the next day, there's Michael. Hey, Michael, good to see you on. Right in the middle of the tram with people packing. The early morning trams are just jammed. And there he is, got those guys around him. But he's down there for the noontime show, that's for sure. So That, that made it. I went to Dockstein many, many times and did a lot of workouts and was witness to that as well. And I got to tell you, as an athlete, it makes it dang difficult to focus on what you're supposed to be focusing on. And focus like, on, yeah. I mean, there are crevasses <laughs> out there, man. <laughs> Ian, anyway. which brings up another point. Okay. okay. So this is Dockside right here. Can you see it? Yeah. Okay. That's Dockside. Yeah. I was the first American to go there from a skiing point of view. I went, uh, Kathy and I went to uh, a German training camp uh, in Sizerelm. You've been there, I would assume, at yeah. some point. Yeah. Altitude training location. So we went and... Oh, we're did you say German training camp, but it was Sizerelm in Italy, of course. Yeah, but so the, the Italian, the Germans were there having the altitude camp. Right, See, right. They I knew just to clarify. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What? It was summer. Oh yeah, summertime. Yeah, it was June, mm -hmm. and so 
the Kathy didn't go up on the glacier because it was oh, it was an ugly day, raining, pouring. But I was there, and I had a pair of Lovett skis. He oh, wanted me oh, to, try. yeah. He wanted me to try out on the glacier, and George Zipfel had. So he was at the camp. He gave us a ride there. We took the skis to the, from Scheiser Elm to Dockstein. Was George Zipfel the coach at the time? No, he was. No, George Suda was the coach at the time. But George Zipfel was, was still a, and Walter Demo was still an athlete. Athlete on the German team at the time. Yes. Okay, and later so, a long time German. And they had about ten or twelve guys at this camp. And they would take off in the morning and they had a trainer. He would meet them halfway, give them a massage, they get a drink, coffee, and have a donut, and then do the rest of the workout. And then in the afternoon they'd do another workout. So we were there for that whole. So the, George Suter and I had hit it off that spring at the top of the worlds. And every uh, every evening we would sit down and talk about this and talk about that. And I asked him, I said, Hey, can I come to one of your camps? No problem. So he was our host. And so we went to the, to the camp. And um, so anyway, uh, offline again, once I get offline, the old brain isn't clicking so good in regards to getting back to where. So what was I talking about? The first, the first U.S. team camps at Dockstein. Okay. Um, oh, you had Jimmy Galanis on. I, I, I call him Jamie. I always have. I, I, I don't know where it came from, but I have. So uh, anyway, Jamie said a lot of guys overtrained by, because of that dark shine. It was the worst thing that could ever happen. It was the best thing that could ever happen. Okay. First of all, there was always other teams there. Okay. So we were doing it. If at the worst, we were doing what they were doing because all they were doing was skiing slow. Yeah, because you're at 9,000 feet. That's true, but okay. I have to say when the Americans go over there, at least in my, I've been there nine times. I've done nine training camps at Dockstein. For some stupid reason, we always seem to ski faster than the other skiers, <laughs> meaning okay. we're, we're working much harder than they are, which isn't yeah. very smart. But the other thing is, is I asked the three coaches who were in charge of the programs that I had that went there over the number of years, can you can you overtrain on Dockstein? First of all, I think, You'd have to be there longer than we're there, but you can't put yourself behind. But if you've got, if you don't have a coach, it's possible you could overtrain. If you have a coach, you ain't going to overtrain. Okay. The things that came out of that, that were good. Okay. Number one, you're on snow and you're not ground pounding all for those 10 or 12 days or two weeks that you're there. You're not ground pounding. So it gives the body a nice race to continue and finish the season this dry land season up with the other thing the suppliers are there and all you have to do is let them know you're going to be there and they're going to be there in full supply we used to there was one plane so well klm was our airline that we used for the canadian ski team so they so you i had one guy that i dealt with and i kind of bought him off you know stefner sweaters you no. may not know them, but they're Austrian sweaters, and they are gorgeous. Oh, the sweaters. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the sweaters. The person's name. <laughs> no, Stephanie okay. sweaters, okay? Uh -huh. Yeah, Stephanie. So we would slip a few sweaters to them to have them slip a few extra pounds. We had one year going home 4,000 pounds of freight. Wow. Yeah. 
Everybody got the everybody got their skis. Everybody got their poles. Everybody got their boots. Everybody got clothing. I mean, and so the other things that go on, okay, you can, I mean, you watch them dress and undress on the glacier. You watch them. I mean, everything that the foreigners were there, you were breaking down those barriers. Yeah. And it's up to, and the other thing I did that they didn't do is they, they slept down in Ramsau. We slept at the base. Where? Truvon or Hotel Dachstein? Truvon, yes. It's not as great as every other, but I'll tell you what. Sleep an hour hour longer. Don't have to do that stupid ride up the hill because every time you go up that hill, those guys driving are going like, holy hell. Didn't have to worry about the fist fights at the door because you're in the front of the line, not the back. You actually, we actually saw fist fights over. Oh, you took my, you took my place. Oh yeah, I definitely saw that. Did you, do you still have contact with the Vaja familia that used to run and own the Truvon? They still do. I I tried to call Elizabeth about two weeks ago, but I think so. You know what? The, the, did you stay there at the Truvon? Yeah, many times. Okay. Oh, I stayed everywhere, but yeah, yeah, I stayed there. Well, you know how big they were. Yeah, they had been sent to Mayo Clinic to be tested to see if there was anything could be done for them. Nope. Yeah. But I was surprised the last. So Kathy and I, maybe what ten years ago, Kath. Longer than that, twenty years ago. The, that we took uh, those guys. Yeah. Yeah. We took some friends there mm. on a hiking trip in the summer. Super. Uh, they, they are so blown away by the whole thing. We, I got to tell you this: the first day we went hiking, we went up this trail across the hotel from the Sizer from the. Two of them. No, not the two of them. We're at Sizer Elm. Okay. Back to Sizer Elm. Yeah. And so we went across the street and up the hillside over there. So, you, you know, you can get, they have three courses there. Yeah. Three skiing courses, race courses. 3,000, 6,000, 7,000. You can do all three elevations. So we're high, we go hiking and we were telling our friends we're going to be going from hut to hut to hut. Didn't explain anything to them. So we come to the first hut. We get up there from the first hut that we've hiked to. Here's this big, gorgeous building, a church on attached to it, capable of taking care of 100 people. We walk in. There's a big bar. There's a lady cleaning up behind the bar doing something. She's got a little kid out there with her. And she says, what are you Americans doing up here? And we say, well, we're, uh, these guys are Canadians that we're, we're in Canada now. So we said, we're not Canadian. Uh, we're not Americans. We're Canadians. She <laughs> says, uh, what are you doing here? Oh, we're skiers. Oh, do you know George Zipfel? Huh. <laughs> I said, yes, we know George Zipfel. Well, we've got to have a drink to that. So my friends we, she pours us a schnapps and then we're out and uh, Marty, can you go anywhere in the world without ever somebody knowing you? <laughs> hey, Marty, I want to get back on task here. Okay. Uh, get me on track. There's, there's a, there's a big one here. So, um, as ski technology involved, so did opportunity to innovate. And in the mid seventies with the cooperation of Rob Kiesel, you developed a new kick wax pocket for skis. Additionally, you all tested and developed new glide waxes, previously called alpine waxes, but now you Nordic can, glide waxes. You, you, you can stop there, okay? we got to make can this you, Can you talk about these important projects? I sure can. 
So uh, we go back in the summer some, and maybe into the year before the fall, Monk was, Steve Williams was my assistant coach. Okay. John Bauer became the program director. Okay. There was some, the, the Middlebury Dartmouth uh, line as wide open as the, the, the hate mongers. Those guys didn't like each other. I'm not sure, but John fired Monk. And then I said, well, I've got to have an assistant coach. Robbie had, was an alpine skier, you know, really good. He was on the national team. Broke his, I think he broke his leg. He, he, he injured something badly enough that he got stuck in the hospital for a while in Sun Valley. Walked out of the, the hospital, looked around, you know, at the mountains. The sun was out and says, it's a pretty nice place. I think I'll settle down here. So he settles down. He gets himself affiliated with, their, with Rick Kapala with their cross-country program, and he becomes a cross-country coach. All of a sudden, any seminars or clinics I'm doing, he's there. He's at them, asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. So I get to know him in our conversations, and I say to Bauer, I need an assistant coach. I want this guy. Not that I realized about the Alpine stuff and all the waxing, that much, but I, it, he was just so attentive and just learning, you know, wanting to learn. I thought it would be a good inspiration for our program and also for me. So we have this camp in Cook City, the year of the Olympics, that fall. So the national team is there November 1st, not, no snow again. In one of these camps, we had actually had a meadow that was in behind a mountain, not a big mountain, but just a good size that covered the meadow all day long. It was always in the shadows. So the little they'd had good snow, but the little bit of snow they had was evaporating, not melting, evaporating because there's no water. So we come down to dinner one night and there's this guy sitting at our table. He said, who are you? My name's Don Johnson. He says, I'm a darty. He says, I, I work for a track ski company. And I'm here to find out what we should be doing for a kick zone for track skis. Because last year, we put the track scales on the whole ski, and they were slower than shit. So every night we would sit down. We came, we, this program just evolved. All the kids, so of course it's all kick wax. You know, we're back in those days where it's just classic. And so we got so that we organized this 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 small group would wax like this, this kind of group would wax like this, this group would wax like that. And we go up and check their skis out and check their skis out and check their skis out. And pretty soon all the skis had no wax behind the heel plate. No wax behind it. And the companies, the ski companies and the wax companies were saying 50-50. Here's the balance point, 50-50. Well, 50-50 in the back was gone or was going. So we got so we could pick skis to fit people. We started doing the paper test. 
Okay, out on the tracks, we would have people take wax off and put wax on pretty soon. Then we started thinking, hmm, how about the glide? So then we started fooling around with glide waxes because they won't last long. They only go to for two minutes going down the downhill, you know, or three minutes and the wax is gone. Well, the wax wasn't gone. So then we started using alpine wax for our gliders. The kick zone had been, it's still, that's what they do nowadays, still. What we did then, we identified that. So it wasn't Kiesel alone, it was the three of us. We all had an input and, and, and selfish reasons, or maybe not selfish, but we all gained that. When we got to Europe, okay, and we went, we had two races. So now we're into the real funnel. So we were supposed to go from Cook City. We were going to then go home for Thanksgiving then get back together up in um, Quebec for a camp, but there was no, no snow, so that camp got called off. I had gone, this story's long, I'm sorry it's long, but so that fall I had done a clinic in um, Minneapolis. I get a phone call there, or a guy comes up with a phone or something. Anyway, I get on the phone down in the lobby. And he, this is Tony Wise. You know who I am? <laughs> I'm trying to talk as fast as he talks, okay? I want you to come over here and see our place. I said, well, I'm a little too busy to do that. He said, you'll be in the lobby tomorrow. We'll have you here in time and back. What time do you have to be back? I said, well, if we get back by bedtime, that'd be great. So get down the lobby. Guy puts us in the car, three or three of us, okay? Four of us, maybe. We go fly over to Telemark, and you know, they've got that run rate right there, huh? Right in the taxi place that you can... Taxi up to the front of the lodge. Taxi up, two Cadillacs sitting there. Then we, <laughs> everything's top of the, top of the. So the, then we go out around the one side. We go into this hill that be, in, in the long run become named Twyla Falls. Twyla Hinkle, you know that name? No. No, she was on the team at that point. Okay. But she took a face plat. It was a real quick little jump type thing. <laughs> We had to glue her face back together. <laughs> but anyway, we went out and looked at that side of the, the courses were groomed to the nth degree. You know, you know, they weren't going to take much snow. And then we go down by the uh, cesspools, you know, where they are down where you, out, after you start. And there's a place out there. It's called uh, Elevator Shaft. Hmm. Ever been out and done, done that? I haven't skied the World Cup trails before. Is that right? No, just about. Oh, wow. So the, the, I, the, the, Sven and I did the big trail, and then I did the, that, and then John Bauer came in and did something, or Koki came in and did something back to the this width, uh, you know, Koki, old-fashioned. So anyway, um, he says, uh, you're welcome to come here anytime you need us. Okay, so we go, and we're going to go to... Quebec City, and three days, they say, okay, you can come. No, you can't come. Come. Next day, no, you can't come. It would snow, and then it would rain, and snow and rain. So finally, I said, I called Bauer up, and I said, we've got to go somewhere. I said, I don't want to go any farther back west than I have to because we're just adding on jet lag. We don't need to be upsetting our apple cart any more than we want to. So um, 
I call, I call Doug Peterson, who's gone home. I said, I want you to go over to Telemark and take a look around and see what the snow is like. Because I've now had a phone call from Tony saying, we've got snow for you. Doug comes on, comes, takes a day for him to get over and look around. He says, he says, Marty, you wouldn't believe the number of people who are out in the woods shoveling those tracks. <laughs> <laughs> you can ski. And then, of course, we get there and they get more snow. And so we have our camps there. And then we get to the point where at the end of Christmas, we're going home, have Christmas home, then go to Europe. And uh, <clears throat> he says, um, uh, I got to think. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I've lost it for again. So it's, tell me where I was. Well, you were, we were trying to talk about developing new axes, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready to talk about 1976 now. You, oh, so you got to finish it here. Let me finish. Okay. So you're talking about Berkey, Tony Wise. Oh, with Tony Wise in there shoveling the snow and we get there and everything is as he, we walk out there and the beauty of that place of Telemark, walk out the door. Oh, I'm tired. Go back in, take a nap, come back out at 11 o'clock. Okay. Or, oh God, that workout killed me. <laughs> Head for the, go, go home, get in the room, get to bed. So anyway, no, I know. So now we're at the point where we're supposed to be going to Lake Placid for our tryouts and the same thing. No snow, no snow, no snow. I said, Tony, you want to do the tryouts? What? I can do the tryouts? So we we were there for a month and a half. For okay. So that's so that's the whole story. So that's the whole story about the wax. Okay, go ahead. So let's talk about nineteen seventy six in in Seefeld, Austria, from honor Bill Koch at a historic. His historic week of racing capped by a, off by a silver medal in the 30K. He was also sixth place in the 15K, which most people don't realize. Can you please tell us about those games and the historic racing that happened? Well, I'll tell you what, right off the bat. And somebody I needs to research this. This may have been the greatest Olympics by a 20-year-old ever. Okay? Those, those results went on. Okay, so he was third, second in the 30. He would have been higher in the 15, but so when, when he got his medal or had won the medal and we were going through, there's a whole bunch of stories. Okay. So anyway, he um, dedicated himself to, I will do anything that you guys want me to do, go to any press conference today that you want me to do to help cross-country skiing. And yeah, and I, I mean, he's so aware of what was going on there. And uh, so, we started out going to drug control, doping control. So I want you to listen and tell me what you would have done, okay? So we had a ton of press conferences up there, television with this country, television with that country, this, that, this, that, this, that. So then we get to the point where you gotta go to doping control, you know? So we go over to doping control, walk in the door, and the Places jammed with people. And so I say to the guy who's controlling them, what the hell are all of these people doing in here? He says, oh, this is the Russian delegation. 
they want to find out how this process works. I said, well, they're going to be doing it without us. They're out of here. And if they ain't out of here, we are out of here. So make up your mind. So all of a sudden, the Russians disappear. And I can tell you, the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I've thought, how the hell or what the hell could they have done that would have compromised his results? But so we did that. While we were in there, we get a phone call. Well, we don't like the, the interview with Jim McKay. And not Jim McKay, we want Kirk Gowdy. We don't like Kirk Gowdy as the interview. Can Cokie come to uh, Innsbruck? Cokie, want to go to Innsbruck? Have an interview with Jim McKay, the number one sports announcer in the world? He says, yeah, I'll go. So we go down. We go down there. Jim's taking a nap because he has the early morning, whatever, I don't know. So he's taking a nap, and Cokie's and I are we get a chance to go to over to the cafeteria and get, get some food. We hadn't really had a, a recovery, anything. Okay. So when we're walking back to the um, NBC place or ABC, it would have been ABC, Jim McKay. He says, can I swear? If you want. Really swear? If you want, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, you can wipe it up, I'm sure. Cokie says to me, I wonder where that fucking metal is. I said, what? What are you talking about? We're walking by a river. Okay, a, chan a canal or something. It's right there. I said, what are you talking about? Do you realize what you've done? Oh, he says, I know what I've done, but he says, you know, all those suckers are up there trying to figure out, trying to figure out how they're going to beat me. And I don't want to have that metal. I'd throw it in that fucking river over there right now if I had it. So... Uh, he was into it. So anyway, he, we didn't get to bed until midnight that night. That's a recovery sleep, isn't it? So let's talk about winning the medal. Because okay. it wasn't under normal circumstances. You had something to do with this, of course. The conditions were, mostly, pretty much all of our listeners know this, but there is a seed and you can pick your starting spot, what seed you put your athletes in. And the yeah. captain's meeting. Do you the know the Do you know the story? I do know the story, but I wanted you to tell it because okay, you're the you're the because you're going to hear the real story. Okay, well, let, let's one of the it. first things about this whole thing is this was a true involvement of the whole team. Okay, so Kiesel had become a, a technician, wax technician now. Okay, he was in control of all the skis, all the waxing. And, um, you know, the, the program to go out and test. And we were maybe inventing things then. I don't know. So one of the things we had, it was a whole protocol of a bunch of skis for glide, bunch of skis for kick, groups out for kick, groups out for glide, Kiesel overseeing all of that so that we would come up. Because the conditions had been, here's the conditions for the whole week before we got, while, while we were there. It would be freezing like a well-digged butt at night. Oh, God, it froze right up solid. And then it would be by noontime melting every day, every day. So <clears throat> I went and called the Air Force, okay, and got their meteorologist and asked them what the forecast is because the other thing that was happening was that 
with the with the draw, it wasn't the night before the race. It was two days before the race. So, you know, any changes they could take, you know, so you, you're taking a chance. So I called those guys. And they said, well, what do you want this information for? And so I explained to them. The guy says, well, we'll, we'll get, you call me back and we'll get you the latest information that we have. And I said, the big thing is, is we want to know how close the weather pattern is going to stay to what it has been for the last 10 days. And so they, I get back on the phone with them. And they say, you're pretty stable, but you're going to have hard snow and you're going to have wet temperatures at noontime, blah, 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 like that. So I go to Koki and I say, we've got the, the draw today. And um, which seed do you want to be in? I'd like to make a suggestion. I said, I'd suggest that you go in the first seed. I said, the negative is that you might be number one. But that's up to you to decide whether you can handle it. But you're most likely only going to get back splits. And it's pretty hard for you to do anything about back splits as the course is getting shorter. Okay? But it's your decision. <clears throat> so go to the meeting. Come back. They said, uh, you're number seven. I'm going to cry. <laughs> he my lucky, my lucky number, my lucky number. So, and I didn't figure this out until a while after the games were over. Yuha Mito started in this, started in this same seed. So he's the top skier. So he was number four. So Kogi had him to chase. So he, he wasn't without good, uh, good, good zeros, good timing splits. So then what we did was we had all our athletes, Larry Martin was in charge of feed stations and timing. So he set up his course the day before, figured it out. One of the pieces of information he came back to us with is he says, there's a section of uh, fir trees up here that's very dense and there's snow on them and it drifts down. And he says, you need to know. And so we kind of figured out what Kiesel did that we were going to have some problems between binder and no binder. And so the morning of the race, Larry's up there with his guys, a couple of guys going out to test the skis, to ski the whole 30 Ks before the race, see what the wear would be like. So we were really covering all the, all the bases. And um, <clears throat> race got underway. And Koki, I'll say I'll say this about Koki, okay? First of all, I'll say what I learned in working with him for two years, okay? The, the year of and the year before, that um, um, his effort in that race was the max. Uh, his, and that, that week was the max. So he skied the 30, skied the 15, got caught up. He, I, he would have been in the top 10, I'm sure, if he didn't do all that stuff for the recovery. In the relay, fastest time, uh, and he was on the no wax skis, okay, um, which was a big deal. When he came in from that ski in the race, he said, I wasn't man enough to ski these uphill or downhill. 
He said, these skis were so freaking fast and had so much climb and it was glazed tracks. You know, hitting the wax for that. If we could have put those skis on Ronnie Ager, we'd have won a medal. No doubt about it. They were so good. So, but then it came to the 50, wanted to race the 50. And I said, Jesus, you've had a hell of a week. I said, how about if we make a deal that you can ski the 50 at home in Colon and not here? Nope, I want to do it here. I said, okay, here's my deal to you. If you're not in the top 15, when you go through, okay, uh, so it's a two lap, 25 Ks. If you're not in the top 15, when you go through, you go out the other side of the stadium and quit. So we can have you race more races later on. So no, I'm I'm doing a race. I'm it's so when he comes through, what place, what place do you think he's in? First flip. Back. I don't remember what place, but he wasn't mm -hmm. doing well. First. Oh, okay. Later in the race then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was 13. He was 13th overall. But I would like someone to check those results for a 20-year-old, because I'm sure that he's running a, the the best 20-year-old hmm. Olympics he was, ever. He was, he was sixth in the 15K also. Sixth. Yes, that's yeah. what I said. Yeah. So, um, so, so the day before, uh, there's more to this story that you got to have here. Okay. So Gerhard had talked to us in Ramsau. He says, you guys are definitely doing something to those skis. He says, I haven't figured it out yet. We used to, during that whole period. Well, I got I got is this Gerhard Toller, the Fisher rep? Is yes, Gerhard Toller. Okay. Oh, yeah. Big buddy. I've talked to him a couple of times. I like that. Pulling a name out of the out of the hat from the past. Yeah. Okay, Gerhard Toller, Fisher rep. Came yeah. to you and Ramzan, he was talking to you about something you are doing to the skis. Well, he says... So in Ramsau, we first went to Reidenwinkel, and then we went to Ramsau, and then we went to the Olympic site. And we had a relay in both places, and we had a 15 or a 10 in both places. He says, if you guys are definitely doing something, he says, just from here, we had a downhill start in the beginning of the Ramsau race or whatever, kind of. He says, by the time you guys are at the end of that, where you turn into the woods, he says, all of your guys are ahead. He says, your skis are so freaking fast, we can't believe it. <laughs> so we know you're doing something. What is it? Well, Koki had received four pairs of skis from him when they arrived in, Ram in uh, Seyfeld. Okay. He's um, uh, one of the pairs is the no hair. Okay. So Koki goes and skis on him, takes him to Gerhard and says, you got to do this to the kick zone. Cut this off the back, cut this off the front, shorten it, you know. And now Gerhard was in, knew what, what we were doing. So, so, um, so the day before the race, Kiesel has his teams. He's the chief of the glide team. And the guys who were skiing the course, Larry Martin's in charge of them. I mean, we were so organized. So um, Larry comes on. Marty, where are you? I said, oh, up at the top of the course. He says, what are you doing up there? We're testing skis. Well, so what's up, Larry? What do you want? And he says, I got this guy down here who wants to talk to you. And I said, well, who is it? 
He says his name is, oh God. He's the head of the Canadian program. Skip Sheldon, that's him. He lives on Long Island, but he's a Canadian doctor. Okay, so he gets on him. Larry's there. He says, hey, Marty, we know you guys are doing something up there. How would you be, would you be willing to share it with us? <laughs> and I said, I, Skip, I, I don't think so. Not yet. Okay, so good luck tomorrow. Boom. So it was getting out and around. So um, we made the decision that we weren't going to do binder. And the other thing, so anyway, the race went as the race, you know, he started out seventh place. And he, you know, that was my pitch to him also. I said, if the conditions stay the way they are, we're taking a chance on that. But if they do, you will be on the fastest snow the whole race. Okay. And the other thing was, is start, start, uh, the, what do I want to say? The interval, start interval, one minute, right. Not 30 seconds, minute. You realize 10 people, how much farther that is. So that's the way the race went. Makes you think <laughs> what the heck oh, happened man. with Sabulov. He, he was so incredible to have, to having such a late start to win that race. It's unbelievable. Of course. In those conditions. Yeah. Well, what the hell? The drugs do miracles, don't they? Yeah, incredible. <laughs> I don't know firsthand, but... Hey, so in 1991, you became the head coach for Cross Country Canada. Um, so everything I've said... 81, Go ahead. Sorry? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in 81, you became the head coach for Cross Country Canada. 89, you became the national teams director for Cross Country Canada. During your time with Cross Country Canada, you were able to develop and support many very uh, talented Canadian athletes who were quite successful. The most notable of whom was Pierre Harvey. A lot of people know Alex Harvey in this day and age. Um, very successful skier. Pierre is his father and was, was very successful. Pierre, I believe, still remains the only North American to have ever won the 50K event at the Hong Kong Ski Marathon in 1988. You must feel pretty, um, I don't know, I guess. Uh, he, he, you know, so after what happened, in Calgary, okay, and to go, so he wasn't going to go back. His wife said, "You're going back. You back got to, to finish the yep. season. go yeah. back. Yeah, there are two World Cup races left. Following them, so, me, so what you said is what what happened in Calgary was a bunch of Russians who clearly doped went out and just kicked everyone's butts. You got it. And then it became this drug thing because of this this um, scandal because of your comments. <laughs> And so there was all this negative energy and the thought was, should he stay home and kind of throw it up throw up his hands because everyone's doped and screw it? Or should he go back there and ski home and go ski festival and what to do, right? You don't know Murray, his wife. No, I don't know. Yeah, well, she ran the ship. <laughs> hey, it's the truth. She said, you're going back. Okay, so tell, tell us about winning the marathon, the ski marathon, home and colon. That's really remarkable. Well, uh, so he had he had two targets in front of him, Uvang uh, and uh, oh uh, Swan. He caught them both. Caught them both. Gundersvan. Okay. Yeah, Gundersvan, Uvang, 
Okay. He caught them both in a race. But then he started to be a nice guy. And then this guy Barco from the Italian team. Silvano Barco. Yeah. Yeah. Was coming on like gangbusters. And so, um, and you know, it's a funny part about this, Ian, is that I just watch that race on T on YouTube, the whole race, everybody starting, everybody finishing. And I saw him, the coaches out on the course feeding them and giving them splits. And I, 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 I just couldn't believe it. So anyway, uh, when he got to Europe, he, he was sick. And you want to know how we knew how sick he was? They had a thing where you could, on Thursday, all the racers could go down on this lake, okay, and race race cars. He, um, Pierre is a car nut. He is a car nut. Like a got lot of the speed racers of his generation. Yep. Got out of his sick bed, okay, and... Uh, Went and did the car thing. And then he also went skiing before the race. So anyway, in the race, I had to go, or I, I'm not sure if I did or Laurent did, or but we got on the radio and we knew he was being gained on. And I said, uh, you know, I got the split. I told whoever was going to go do it. Or anyway. I said, you tell that fucking guy to get his fucking ass going because he's getting gobbled up right now. So he ended up winning by 13 seconds. Whether it, you know, made it, you know, at least he'd be, but to see again, where were the Russians? Home. Okay. That takes a little edge off the whole thing, if that's the way you think. But he knows what he did. And he, he won Falun too. And in the Falun, Mogren said after the first lap, they were doing a 30K. After the first lap, he said, I knew I was racing for second place. Pierre had the, after the first lap, I knew the race was over. So, but the Canadian program, essentially, I just went up there. The same thing. They were ranked 15th in the world. The Americans were ranked 15th in the world, somewhere around in there when I took over. Americans were ranked fifth or sixth by the time I left. American Canadians were fifth or sixth by the time I left. And the thing was, is we didn't have any great girls, but we had a lot of good girls. And, you know, they score World Cup points to 30 places. We were gobbling up those, you know, 15 to 30 points all over the place. So, and uh, when it came to relays, our guys, for some reason, um, you know, relays just brought it out for those Canadian guys, especially. Uh, I just watched one of those races in, that was in Lati on, on YouTube, and we were seventh there. So, so Marty, I want to ask you some questions. Go ahead. So first off, just to, to preface this, one thing I've always admired about you is that despite being a problem solver with great ideas and visions, you weren't just an ideas guy. I, I really, that's a problem for me oftentimes. You actually get out there and do it and put yeah. things into motion, taking lead in the action. You are a hands-on guy with great ideas and problem-solving capability. I think having vision, creativity, and perspective is super important, but if the person in charge is only a dreamer, not a doer, it can be crippling for smaller organizations such as ski teams and clubs. So that's my first question is, what are your thoughts about, about the importance 
on the importance of having an, an actual doer, a hands-on person instead of a dreamer, you know, because the clubs aren't big enough to accommodate that. And I, think that question, I think that question answers itself. I do too. Okay. In other words, you know, you're sitting there and it's that girls across the, the stadium there and you're thinking, uh, you know, I'd love to dance with her, but you know how we are when we're that shy <laughs> and all that shit, you know? And I said, well, you know, you don't have the dance now. What's the worst you're going to be when you get over there and ask her? You might not get the dance. Big deal. You knew that. But if you get the dance, think about the winner you are. That's how I answer that question. Okay. So the thing that I'm looking forward to the most about this interview, along with hearing some great stories, is the opportunity to ask you some questions about the present. Some people in the past have called you uninformed or outdated, which I, I know you're 84 years old, but to me, that's still flabbergasting because um, I think only someone who doesn't know you could say those words, despite you being 84. I know that you stay as current as possible and still possess a creative and analytical brain. So I wanna ask you some questions and I'm excited to hear your answers. The first question is, what are your thoughts about the current developmental pipeline here in the United States? It seems as though the mix of regional training camps sanctioned by the United States ski team, college programs and clubs has been serving us well, as a formal national team and college coach, do you see anything organizationally that we can improve on? All those programs have grown. All of those programs have money, which they never did have. Um, finally, in the colleges, we're seeing some excitement from the schools themselves. In other words, they've got the ski, it's always like the ski team is on some other side of the campus, okay? But now they're starting to have visibility. I uh, just uh, saw the Dartmouth uh, alumni magazine. Oh my God, the whole thing's dedicated to skiing because of course it's the Olympics, but still name after name of athletes who've been on Olympic teams, etc. cetera. Uh, I gave it to uh, my, my friend who went to Dartmouth and he's on, he says it's great, really great. So um, one other thing that what you're doing, okay, social media, that's the big, I, I can't, I don't know if I want to say it's a big thing, but it is huge because there are no secrets anymore. Just go type in Russian strength training program or Russian rock program. And you're looking right at the campus. They're doing it. They, they're doing video. You're seeing, you're seeing everything. I mean, you, there's nothing you can't find if you really want to, you know, go the next step. Same, with, same with training plans, same with technique. Oh, everything. This, this is a lot of great information, right? Oh, it's right, right there. It's all there. Okay, don't be so lazy. You can't go and get it. Okay? And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, nothing was there. Absolutely nothing. You got it. I'd say, yeah, because I, I'm not great now. I'm, I'm losing that interest of going and looking for some things. But I've been. I turn every every page every page I can turn I turn and read it okay and the other thing my wife and I are doing is we're giving money we gave away a hundred thousand dollars last year wow that's a ton to skiing, to skiing. that's awesome faster skier ski tracks not ski tracks but uh, anyway we we give money and I get my uh, social insurance money from Canada. So that builds up to, I don't know how much, yeah, but we give that away to the Canadians. Hmm. So 
Marty's name is around and Kathy's name with the hallmarks of excellence. Yes. Hallmark award. Award. That's yeah. a fantastic thing you're doing. Yeah. And oh. the thing is, is we are the only thing I don't, we're a cheap sport. And what's happened to the sport? Um, They've had people have to now hand out. I mean, nobody's going to let their little kid be in Jackrabbit or or Bill Coakley on shitty skis or shitty boots. They're going to be on the latest stuff. And it's amazing what those companies can make. That's good. Go ahead. Next, Jefferson. Yeah. So here's a, it's basically my question is about the United States is a large country and we actually have a ton of skiers. Most people aren't aware that the United States has more skiers than many, most of these other countries. You go to our national championships and there's, there are a lot of people. If you go to a company like Germany, for example, in 2020, the German national junior championships, there are only 32 U16 girls, 36 U16 boys, 29 U18 girls, and so on. There were very few. The names on these results sheets from the 2020 German, German junior national championships contain every single name of their current World Cup rosters. So despite their, the small size of these fields relative to the United States, Germany has more Nordic ski racers. Same with uh, we, Slovenia, France, Austria, Switzerland, Italy. So my point is we might have a very wide base to our developmental pyramid, but to historically compared to these European countries, the top isn't as sharp. We don't do as well as they do sometimes and I, my, I want to know your thoughts on that. Is we have such a wide base, and there's so many skiers in the United States, but oftentimes we're beaten by very small countries in terms of skiing participants, is like Italy or Slovenia or even France and, and Germany. What are your thoughts on that? Have you read Road to Gold yet? I have it right here, and I've read it. Yes, you've got it. Trail to Gold, right here. Go, go read Trail yeah. to Gold. Yeah. I go, read, read, yeah, I right go read all the individual uh, biogs. Been there, done that. You have? Yes. What's the one thing in there that you've noticed? Uh, From all those, uh, I mean, it, in other words, you got 52 biogs that are all pretty much the same. And it'll identify those weaknesses in the program that are there. Okay. No money, no money. Barbara Bridge. You think Allison and, and Martha were good? Barbara Bridge in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay, she was just her the driving forces. I've got no money. I'm broke all the time. I've got no money. I got no money. Okay, back then. Our culture, because of the size of the country, the culture to in, in Europe. I'll tell you, the Germans, the Austrians, the Swiss, the Swedes, the Norwegians, all have the military behind them. That's money. Yeah. That's money. That's organization. That's because they're good, they'll do special things for them. Okay, so it's made. And, and the other thing is, it's just the fact that we are so big is amazing that we've done as well as we have this quickly, I think. But... In the springtime, okay, in Faster Skier, because that's the only newspaper we have, and it'll be too bad if that ever goes away. We give them a lot of money. And uh, they, you take a look at the 
the articles that are in there with jobs available and salaries that I know of in the 50, 60,000 bracket, when it used to be 30,000, okay, that's all in the money they have for program and the, the races they get to, higher class, more, I mean, it's just, it, it, it takes time, but I'll tell you, it's a lot faster now than it used to be, that's for sure. And, and with the base we have, it'll only get better. But, you know, uh, I just, I think it's a, it was the Canadians, they just had 500 people at the national championships, 500. There's gotta be some good guys, but you know what? Take ski jumping. How long has it been like it's been? Why is it better? They, they, they should have found somebody in those numbers, then they don't have huge numbers, but there should still be some people there. Something's not happening right. And they've got the jumps and the clubs and the programs, but they cannot find there a ski jumper for, for the soul. It just, it's amazing. Cross country's done a good job. Let me ask you another question. Over the past 15 years, the U or we did really, really well in the 80s. We really, really well sometimes um, in the early 2000s. And recently the US has improved significantly as a Nordic ski power. Surely some of this has to do with less abuse of performance enhancing drugs in the field. But what do you think we do particularly well currently? And what do you think we could do better to produce top international results? We don't get any communications from the national team, nothing. Do you, faster skiers should be a pipeline for them, okay? But there, is, there are interviews with the national team coaches and athletes after pretty much every World Cup that faster skier runs. Yeah, but this should, so they've got guys who are doing development. Adam St. Pierre, who's the other coach? Gretchen the, Anderson. No, go, he's the oh, third or fourth coach. Brian Fish. Yes. Why aren't they pumping stuff out? I haven't seen anything from Adam St. Pierre of what he's discovering. He should be, I mean, they, 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 they've got to be the pipeline. And it can't be casual like that. I'm doing it in an interview. No, got to be written. You got some, you know, in the summertime, there's some, you got time that you can do that kind of stuff. Kind of like a how-to manual. This is, yes, this sir. is, this is how to get from here to here. This is how we teach technique. This is exactly, how we train exactly. it. Oh, and the other thing, formalized, formalized. and then the other thing on top of that, coaches certification sucks in the country. Two pages, five pages a day, a day. That's all they spend on it or two days. Give me a break. So this, is are, a tough, this is a tough sport. For sure. So you've highlighted a couple of things that we could do better. What do you think we're doing well currently? Uh, it's, it, you know, they've lost a lot of good skiers in the last two or three years, and they seem to be holding up pretty well and replacing them. Yeah. Um, I... I think they, I know one thing, they need to know more about altitude. Yeah, everyone does. Okay, four years ago, maybe three years ago, um, they went to, they, they didn't go to, so the World Cup takes place period one. Then after period one, everybody should go to altitude to pump up the altitude tanks. 
In other words, go to Sizer Elm, go for 10 days, 12 days. Uh-uh. Not, not, the, not, the, not the Americans. They went to safe health. Oh, that's altitude training. You know, our people, and, and the excuse I got, because I got after Whitcomb, and um, I said, why are you going there? You're 3,000 feet under with altitude. Well, they went to Seville and they went to Lavinio. Lavinio is altitude, huh? Okay, yes, okay, that's good. Okay, you got, but but you got to be at six to seven thousand feet. That's yeah. the thing about Sizer Elm. You can go three thousand. That's a race, whole race system. You can go six thousand. That's a that's the illegal one. It goes up and over the the numbers. But you can go up in the back part of Sizer Elm and you're up at seven thousand feet. Plus, you can live up there if you want to. Yeah. Okay. But what are you doing in Seyfeld? What the hell are you doing? Is oh, our people don't like Sizer Elm. They don't like it. That ain't the story. That's where the kids are running the show. My they understanding should... was there was a little bit of there were two World Cups that were canceled, and they needed to call an audible and change their plans quickly. And they knew they wanted that was, Latino. but that wasn't two years to three years ago. So oh, okay, I'll tell you what I'm talking about this year. Yeah. Okay. So. Let's talk about, I have a few different questions about doping. So let's not listen, if you don't mind, listen to the question, because I'm going to ask you numerous questions about it. Doping has been traditionally a huge problem in Nordic ski racing. While today it might be less of a problem than it has been in the past, we know it continues to be an issue, obviously. We know people are still doping, but there's still easy ways out of testing positive, such as blood packing and micro dosing. There still isn't a test for human growth hormone that will stand up in court. The organizations such as FIS and the IOC clearly are protecting dopers. Can you comment on this? And if you were king of ski racing for a day, what changes would you implement to correct this serious problem? So if the athletes, in my mind, think they are being tested too much, they wouldn't believe it. When I, if I was the, the honcho, you would not believe how, like what's going on with COVID? There's no question. You're going to get tested. You're going to get tested. Same thing for doping. Testing, testing. Those people have to start to show up and they haven't yet. Even uh, the guy I thought who was hot, who's the guy who runs the uh, US uh, USADA? Oh, Travis. Yeah. 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 I thought he was yeah. a tough guy, but he ain't. I think he's caved in on all of that. I mean, the, the, the whole doping thing. I mean, so if there's an, a thorn under my saddle, okay, it's the fact that I made that statement in Calgary, went out on a limb by myself. There were no other coaches that would support me, no other, no athletes that would support me. Did I, I, did I tell you about Johaug? Despite everyone knowing that it was true. Yeah, yeah exactly. Everyone knew it was true. Oh. No one dared to open their mouth, except for you. Yeah. That, that just pisses me off. And I, you know, it's, so I, whatever would have happened out of that, I was willing to take the, you know, take the penalty if there was a penalty. And there is a penalty because it's, you're not sure now if it's any better. So you are obviously a very competitive person as a coach. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've witnessed you at races back in the 80s and 90s. I've known you for a long, long time. You're, you're as competitive as they get. You know, you're out there to win. You're out there to gain every advantage you can. 
and you're a serial winner. Despite this, over your long coaching career during the heyday of doping, you never encouraged anyone to cheat, to be competitive, or to even the playing field. What do you say to those who say they dope only to be competitive because everyone else is doing it, or to people who are wrestling with this issue? You're weak. You're weak. But, but if, if someone's wrestling with an issue, I understand you're saying you're weak if someone's saying, well, I'm doping because everyone else is doping. I need to dope in order to be competitive. Just in excuse. Just in excuse. Because it's not the sport. Yep. Hmm. And you're not true to you, and you're not being true to yourself either. Okay, for all the work you you still have to do a lot of work in this sport and cheat. But uh, the biggest one of the biggest things that bother that goes goes with me is how many of the guys who didn't cheat are getting cheated out of the medal, the placing. I mean, all of that. Uh, the Notoriety in the newspaper. You know, Funny. you know what? Funny. You know why we do you know why we race all of us? We want to see our name in the newspaper. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> well, maybe a picture, but no, I just yeah. it, it, it was what one or two Olympics ago swimming, that girl pointed at the Russian. Uh, and she broke, yeah. And she broke down yeah. because you know what? She was cheating. You know it. So I've got a very long question here because I need to set, I need to provide some information because a lot of people don't know this information, but um, be a little patient with me and, um, and I, I'd love to hear your answer. So much attention is being given to the traditional doping practices of taking EPO, taking HGH, autologous or homologous blood transfusions or steroids, for example. That's getting a lot of the attention. However, I want to ask you about another issue that doesn't seem to be very popular to discuss. In fact, it's very unpopular. In Norway, the Norwegian Ski Federation has been quite open about recommending or even requiring Nordic skiers to regularly take asthma medicines, bronchodilators, such as sambutamol and albuterol. They openly recommend this for all athletes, even those who do not have asthma, as they say there is a prophylactic or preventative effect to developing asthma. Science tells us that if only so much of these medicines are taken below the limit and with an inhaler, there is no benefit to those who don't have asthma. However, science also tells us that if taken regularly and through a nebulizer, such that the medicine flows into the stomach, there is a systemic anabolic effect resulting in increased strength, improved recovery, loss of fat, and gain of denser, leaner muscle and body composition. If I were to look at the Norwegian team, they clearly have the leanest men's and women's teams on the circuit which is a great thing for Nordic ski racers. They even have multiple nebulizers for the athletes to use regularly in their wax trucks that go to all their events and on snow training camps. For the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018, the Norwegian team brought 6,000 doses of asthma medicine, including Simbicort, Atrovent, Alavasco, Ventolin, and Aramir. Asthma medicines are popular in this Nordic sport, but it amounts to more than 10 times to what, for example, the Finnish team brought. Many of the drugs are approved and administered through having received therapeutic use exemptions through WADA, meaning that both the amounts and the drugs taken are not acceptable for those who haven't received this special permission. Mona Scheldsberg, head of the Norwegian health team at the Olympic Games in 19, um, 
20, the last Olympics said, we stand for the doses that we have. We have calculated based on what we had in the previous Olympic games. So she's standing by it. So my question is, what is your opinion on this matter? Sensitive matter. So if you have all this information, what's his name, Taggart? He's got it. Why isn't he doing something about it? Same thing. You know what? Collecting paycheck. That's what he's doing in my estimation. I mean, it's, this whole thing has to explode. I mean, it's still, it's still shameful. Just, it bothers me. Oh, my God. I mean, 6,000 of anything? You should be able to dope the world with that. But my God, it's crazy. It just... You know, let me ask you this backwards, okay? And it might have, and I haven't thought about it until just a second, okay? All the guys that have been competing through the COVID thing, with no fans in the in the in the uh, in the in the crowd, you know, empty stadiums, yeah. and they're still putting out like that. I mean, I I, I just don't. It doesn't. That doesn't make sense. You know. It, really pisses me off that we've come from Calgary 88 I mean that's 20 years and nothing's really nothing's really changed let me ask you what a if, direct question do you think that doping do you think that using the abusing these as a medicines is as serious an egregious doping offense as taking steroids and abusing EPO and blood packing do you think it's comparable what, what are your thoughts on that that's not up to me to answer because I don't know scientifically what, but if I had the information, I would know that's for sure. And all I have to do is would be to read it and hear it and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Here's a question for you. World Cup cross-country ski races pale in their popularity compared to biathlon. Biathlon is far, far more popular. Um, the TV ratings pale for cross-country ski racing compared to biathlon. In Germany, biathlon is king. It's been the number one viewed winter sport for a long time. I have relatives in Hamburg where there's no snow or mountains. They don't ski at all. And like most Germans, they watch every single biathlon race without exception. However, even cross-country skiing in, in, in ski-crazy Norway, biathlon vastly outperforms both cross-country skiing and soccer to be easily the number one spectator sport. I know you are familiar with the formats of biathlon and cross-country skiing as well as how both sports are presented on TV. What is biathlon done correctly and what should cross-country skiing do better? Well, I know one thing um, is, what's the race? What's the, what's the race uh, in cross-country that uh, they take their time from the day before and they start that gap? Pursuit. Yeah, I was going to say, pursuit. What the hell is that about? Do you watch that race and know who's winning or losing or what's going on and that they have hidden results that come out afterwards? And That's so stupid. There's a ch that's a chance missed. I'd, I'd, my, myself, I think there needs to be uh, more mass start races. It's interesting. Country skiing has abandoned the pursuits. And biathlon continues with pursuits. So well, I'm glad they're getting rid of the pursuit. Okay, yeah. that makes me really happy. I turn that on, I turn it off. When when I see that on, 
Hmm. It doesn't mean anything. Okay? It's, uh, who, whoever dreamed that up, he, he shouldn't be allowed near a cross-country course, that's for sure. Um, one of the things I think in some of the shorter races, there should be more terrain things could that test your ability to really turn those things, really stay on top of them. And uh, I mean, those races, and the, the only thing exciting about Dresden, I think it's Dresden, where yep. the falls are, and of course it's just dead flat, okay, uh, is the falls. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it gets to be that pretty soon there's going to be a mentality that's like that. So that was my next question regarding what, what used to be Dusseldorf. Then in the end of October, there was a city sprint in Dusseldorf that was flat, but it was very narrow. And then we had Dresden. Dresden is canceled after this year. It'll be something else. But what are your, I, I think that those have been quite boring events with a lot of crashes. And um, you, in my mind, you have to have an asterisk next to the results on those races because they're not real ski races in a sense. What are your thoughts? Would you, what are your suggestions to FIST regarding city sprints? Because I thought Drummond and, and Stockholm were great city sprints, tough courses, yeah. with good climbs. What are your yeah. suggestions to That's, the FIST? But isn't, but isn't that what our sport's about? Exactly. That's what, it, it, that's what I, who's the toughest, not who's the roughest. How do you <laughs> like that one? Yeah. So do you think the city sprints should continue to be held, but only on courses? Oh, definitely. Yeah. But they've got to do some of the courses. And just bring me a snow gun. I can fix that up real quick. Yeah. So, there but the go. courses should be challenging. So one year in, in Galena, okay, we had races up there and we had a... So just, for, just for clarity, you mean Galena Lodge in Idaho? or where, Yes, the Galena Lodge in Idaho, Spring okay. Series, okay? Yeah. And they, they had an over-under and you came down around. I mean, it was crazy. The course was crazy, but it was fun. But it was the stuff that, they, you know, you because that meadow out there is kind of restrictive to the fact that that's the best terrain to do this. But as soon as you make something that's longer, you're outside of the good terrain. So, and it was also a course that you could stand in certain locations and see the whole thing. Okay. But it was, it was tricked up. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting point you make because uh, this, this might be, I think that um, a lot of the athletes in the World Cup who are successful are not very technically skilled. And those athletes tend to come from East Bloc countries. And I think they do pretty well because of the doping programs they have, but not because of the skill they have on skis. And you can Boy. see that over the years, they crash all the time. The East Bloc countries, especially the Russians, they crash all the time. Um, and that's been highlighted in many interviews, in fact. You don't want to follow a Russian in a mass start because they'll probably take you down. Yeah. And and putting making a course more technical could be an equalizer in terms of ski ability as compared to just doping and being a machine. Would you agree with that? I haven't seen it that much. But I do know that the where I've seen falls, Sadie Bjornsson was in a fall in one of those races through two or three years ago. And it was in Quebec, I think. She was in a fall. And she got, what's her name? Who's the Norwegian girl who's famous for knocking everybody down? 
The Dylan's gonna be the doctor. Oh, Astrid Jacobson. Yeah. Oh, she knocked. She she just about put put Bjornsson in the cheap seats. <laughs> and I I brought it up. I so I emailed what's his name, Minier, or however you say his name. I said, "What the hell are you running there? You can't see that." And he wrote back to me, "Shut your mouth. You didn't see anything." There was nothing going on. Well, I saw somebody get elbowed and I saw somebody fall down and I saw somebody else fall down. It was a mess, that corner. Okay. But he wrote back to me and said, shut your mouth. I don't like you anyway. <laughs> In uh, two years ago, there was the, I think it was called 2020 ski tour. It was the, the ski tour that was in Norway. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, a, it was a, like a seven day event in Northern Norway, most of it. And one of the stages was a, an orthodox stage. It was a sprint stage that went up a, a, a ski hill, super steep. Now, I'm not talking about these two-day ski. I'm talking about ski I know what you're talking in the about. spring. Yeah, yeah. And the start went on a sharp downhill with a curve in it. And then it did a sharp 180, and it was tricky conditions. So it was a tough transition. Then it went into a climb. And there was a split on that, on that long sprint that day. And it was interesting to see who, how many skiers were so far behind in that first sprint, simply because of the technical difficulty of the course. It was a great uh, equalizer. There were most of the Russians started out about 20, 15 to 20 seconds out of that on that climb. It was interesting. That's interesting. Uh, so I got a question for you. Laukli sure. and who is the other girl? McCabe. Who? Novi McCabe. I don't know. McCabe and Laukli. Yeah, Sophia Lockley, Novim Cave, yeah. What about them? How they're the hell are they what? Well, they're fantastic. What's your question? How'd they do it? They sure didn't hit anything like that in the rest of the races they did. Top 30, if they were lucky. All of a sudden, they were sixth and seventh, or sixth and fifth. In that race, that's probably seven times tougher than anything else they did. So I have an idea what, what went on with them. Well, I mean, for they're starters, fit. They're really fit, but, yeah, they but they ain't fast. They ain't fast. Think about it. Why can't they do better than that in regular races? Because they can't handle the speed. Well, they've got at, the fitness to do it. If you look at the Tour de Ski, and you're looking, you're talking about the hill climb and the end of the Alpine. Oh yeah, I'm talking about the hill climb. How do you end up seventh and fifth? There's an American okay. in past years, Liz Stephen was a regularly top three and she's won it before regularly top three in that race. I mean, and Sophia Laukley and Novi McCabe are lighter. They're lighter than your average. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. In the field. And, and so that's to their advantage. And at the end of the tour de ski, you've got a lot of tired people and also a thinned out field. So I, I think they did fantastic and to their compliment, but I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't point a finger and say they don't have speed. They're they're up and coming racers. I mean, Sophia Lockley. Oh, I don't doubt it, but she's tremendous. They may quickly. They may have a speed limitation. In other words, it could be, but generally smaller skiers have that issue. You know, look at right. Teresa Yohog. She's not a sprinter either, but yeah. she can win the hill climb any day. Yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of it has to do with body weight and, and build, so that you have an advantage on the climb. Same with Liz Steven, but you're not a good. You don't have yeah. speeds per se. No, I, I, I think I could change those girls. I have a workout that I did with some girls and it took them from, in a, in a kilometer, it improved their per kilometer time by 20 seconds. 
Well, that's a heck of a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Yes. But it, they, it, it, they did it. So anyway, um, I think, you know, finding the talent. So there's one thing I have for a problem. There's some people who stay on the tour, you know, and I don't want to, they stay too long. They let them stay too long. When you mean the tour, you don't mean tour to ski, you mean the World Cup tour in general. Yes, in general. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about athletes who are getting older and they're... They've been around long enough to get older. Right. So their goal isn't necessarily to win a World Cup someday. They, they've seen their potential more or less, and they're, they're more or less enjoying being in the World Cup and kind of the, the life. Something lifestyle, lifestyle racers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Send them home. They can raise it home here. There's a nice domestic circuit in this country. And if I can get people to follow our lead, mine and Kathy's, give money. What, what would you say to someone who would say, well, what if they make the team? I mean, if they're good enough to make the team, how do you send them home? Then you, ch then you change your results. And the other thing is they got to get rid of the discretionary numbers, the terminology. When, we had, when I had a program, we had discretionary, but you know where it was? At the opposite end of the scale that this is. This is at the back end. It should be at the front end. So, like, words, they've like got, you know who they screwed? Rosie Brennan. She's right here somewhere. She's on this one of these walls. Rosie Brennan, when she left the team, they didn't name her? Twice, yeah. Yeah, because that year she started out good, but I think she got mono. Right. And she got went out. And then she came back in and did that run up in Alaska and set a new record. And she's not a foot runner. And she set a new record. They should have named her for the team on that. That that They should have never not named her. And the other thing was they could have put her on a development team. They didn't even put her on a development team because having U.S. ski team by your name helps you raise money. It definitely and she's just a nobody out there. They have to be careful. I have a question for you. This is something you know a heck of a lot about. North Americans, in terms of making it to the top of the World Cup, if you're looking at a German, <coughs> a German can compete in German Cup races, they compete in Alpine Cup races, what used to be called Europa Cup races, and then they compete in World Cup. And they can, they can make their way up and down that, that ladder of Continental Cups, et cetera, basically by spending, while spending almost zero money because... The average race is like an hour from their house. You know, it's yeah. no big oh, deal. Yeah. Yeah. In the United States, we've got um, our super tours in the United States, and we have our Continental Cup, which we share with the United States and Canada. But that level traditionally is still very far from the level of competition in the World Cup. Yeah. And what some people have tried to do is do Alpine Cup races. But it's extremely expensive. And, and the amount of money that needs to be gained and, and um, fundraised to participate not only in the World Cup but in the Alpine Cup when you're on your way up is is unrealistic, really. So, is the goal to raise the level of competition in our Continental Cup races to the point that you can successfully jump from that to a World Cup? So it's similar to an Alpine Cup. What's a what's a realistic way of managing this? Boy, culture. Our culture is so hard to build because the country's so big. You know, and, and like 
maybe five years from now, what Marty Hall and Kathy Hall are doing with the money, okay, will be not a problem because we finally have changed our culture to take include that in every package it gets put out for racing. Okay, you find you'll find the sponsors. I mean, Dan and they gave $50,000 for that Dan and yogurt series for two years in a row. I went around and organized that thing. 20 races. I mean, that needs to be done again. But put some pride. You, you know, and people say they don't race for money. Well, at some point, they'll race for money. That's for sure. Okay. They, they will say, you know, there's a reason to do this other than me. Oh, if you if you put a dollar sign next to results, even domestically, like that you're talking about, it's an incredible motivator. It's a it's a thing that makes people more professional. They train harder. They sleep better. They recover better. They eat better. And you know, but but you know what else is most important? Social media. You and me talking about it right now. Yeah, we're touching somebody who's going to come forward. Yeah, what did I hear? Just I, I won't say. I heard something the other day about somebody who wanted something and the money they, because they, they had the money, they, they bought it, you know, and just bought it. Okay. So uh, I wish I could remember the whole thing. I didn't think it was important at that time. Hey, Marty. So you mentioned your, the impromptu epitaph that you wrote for yourself. I did yeah. it my way. Yeah. To me, this is one of your defining characteristics and it's what led you to so much innovation and success. Uh, this is one of the things I've been trying to highlight in this, in this interview with you, because I think it's part of your quite clearly part of your legacy. In addition to being very successful, can you elaborate on how important it was for you and what it means for you to have been able to do it your way? Okay. So that's my culture. I've got a culture too, you know, Okay, so one of the things that I used to do when I, and it probably still happens, when I don't win something, it's because I haven't prepared enough, okay? And it's as simple as that, because I like to win. There's no second place. I, it's the way I've always been. And it's gotten me in trouble sometimes too, okay? Because I'm too strong and I push people too fast, too hard. But the other thing is, is, um, oh God, I wish I could remember that. Oh, I know. Les Maison, you know that name? Well, actually for the, uh, uh, from White Horse, Horse, you know him. I know you do. Yeah, I know him. He and he okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, he and Lucy Steele, the blonde, she's a blonde. You, you can't forget her if you've ever seen her, but she's, they're married. They're at dinner at our house. They used to house watch for us in, when we were in Canada. And they were, we were having dinner. And in, in the course of the dinner, he says, the one thing I like about you, Marty, I know where I stand all the time. There's no fudging, no fooling around. It's right there in front of me. I appreciate that also. Buddy. It's up to me to deal with it. I appreciate that also. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big deal. And I'm still alive. 
you know what? This has probably been getting ready for this was probably the one of the because I don't like, you know, I'm now 84 and there's some things that are going on. And you know, when you get here and you come to a place like we're in here now, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not giving up from what I've said today. Okay. But you're not, you're not not working with a full pistol, you know, and that's, I don't like that. Yeah. I'd like to, you know, know the names better. And, and of course, you know what, um, you're going to say something. My wife's right out here. Oh, so I just given her a chance to add, but that's a that's a that's a big deal. Uh, and the thing I I know, uh, so I I went to a ceremonial in life. Penny Petru's brother died, and we got talking at that thing, and there was this kid. So where we were was that gunstock, and there's a old sign out when you turn into Gunstock that was for the Auburg Inn and a guy by the name of Freddie Knockbar owned it and he had kids and one of the kids was Ricky Knockbar and I'm saying at the celebration of life as any of any of you people there's all Penny's friends so they're all Guilford and this kid's from Guilford his father owned it and anybody seen Nicky Ricky Knockbar I said nope haven't seen him in a while so I walk in, and then about three days, four days later, I'm in McDonald's. Who walks in the Who walks in the door? But Ricky Knockbar. He said, "Butch." My nickname's Butch. Okay, when I was a kid. Butch, what the hell are you doing here? I said, "Ricky, what are you doing here?" And we got all so excited about the, you know, that we were seeing each other, and you know, all you could do is think. It was pretty it's exciting to me. Well, anyway, that's a. And the other thing I, the other thing I do, I, I talk to everybody and anybody. And the thing is, oh, the other thing here's a here's a natural asset that I have. I look at you, okay. And I know something about you right away that I can talk about. Okay. I notice something. Uh, and if somebody comes and I'm good kinesthetically, somebody walks in and they get this little limp or a little of this or a little of that, I pick it up right away. I just see things. And it's a big asset, real asset. Oh. The, the talking to people, you're not just a social person. You do it in, in great part to learn and to exchange ideas. You've exactly. done that with me for decades. For decades, you come up to me and you've been comparing notes on waxing and yeah. what about doing it this way and that way. And you're very innovative, but you're also, uh, despite your accomplishment and your level, um, you're able to learn from people, people which is which yeah. is average. Well, you know what? Ian, know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a card and make it with your information on When somebody starts to shit on me or give me a tough time, I'm going to give them your card. All right. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk out of this room. I feel so good. Oh. <laughs> we went to dinner the other night. We sat down by this couple. The guy had a beard, okay? And the girl was nice looking, had a hat. She looked like she was a regular. He looked like he was a hippie. And so we got talking. It was two hours before we left. The 
they both work for the government, okay? She's in something espionage type thing. And he is definitely a pack. I say, do you pack? He says, I pack. He's a, he's a drug line. He's a, trying to shut down the drug line between Lawrence, Massachusetts and up here. Oh. Yeah. But I couldn't believe how we kept raising the comedy. Yeah. So that's, that's how I work. Marty, it's been my great pleasure to be able to uh, conduct this interview with you. Yeah. It's my hope that people will enjoy listening and learning, listening to and learning from this interview for years to come. Uh, thank you for everything you've done for uh, that, that you've done for us and for the American ski community for over the great many years. We are all better off as skiers in North America in no small part due to your efforts. Uh, thank you for this gift that you've given us and I wish you the best and I look forward to seeing you around. Okay, oh, one coaching thing left for you master blasters, okay? Yeah. Okay. My last race at the Berkey, it was the Cordelopit. I won my age group by 15 minutes. 15. How did I do that? I did a Martha Rockwell. I lifted weights. Get in a weight room. Get lifting heavy weights because you will improve your places by un your tons. You don't win a race at the Berkey by 15 minutes. My God. And you know what else that is really funny? Some lady, every time I went to the Berkey, some lady would come, oh, you're here. My boys want to know if you're going to be racing in what age group. Um, anyway, weightlifting is a big deal now. There's no yeah. question about it. Finally, finally. Yeah. So. Well, thank you again. And uh, I love your enthusiasm and passion for the sport and for helping people and your competitive spirit. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I had a great time. Same here. And I think you are, I, I, I keep going. Don't get old. Do my um, best. Yeah. And keep doing these. And I'll send you some names of people you might want to think about doing. Have you started to go up into Canada yet? No, this is a U.S. podcast. <laughs> interviews with top U.S. Athletes and ski personalities. So, but you know, it's interesting about Canada right now is where they've come from in the last two or three years already. Yep. I said, I said about five years, four years ago, that they won't have anything for a program for ten years. They're so bad, and they the kids have done a marvelous job up there. Absolutely, unbelievable. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Ian. Been a pleasure. <laughs>